You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. Um, okay, then down to business. Oh, I tell you what, before we get down to business, we are, uh, as we speak, we are, how many, what day is it? It's the 4th of January, right? Mm-hmm. So we are 11 days away from Christmas, right? Christmas was 11 days ago. Yeah. And by the time we get to the end of this podcast, Christmas will have been 11 days and two hours ago. So if I'm going to review something that's specific to Christmas, I'd better do it now at the start of the podcast. Okay. Otherwise, it's going to be even less relevant by the end of the podcast. <laughs> <clears throat> so, okay. Uh, I reviewed for the magazine the um, Dorian Gray Christmas special. They always do a Dorian Gray Christmas special. like a It's like a ghost story for Christmas thing, mm-hmm. Dorian Gray style. And... Well, we've got a lot to get through, so in a nutshell, it's two hour-long plays. And the first one had David Warner in it. Nice. And it was an interesting idea, but sadly the story wasn't really worked through. Mm. So although it's got a great cast, great acting, great atmospherics, great idea, the plot kind of disappears a bit before the end, and it sort of finishes up with... Well, it's one of those ones where it's kind of, rather than people doing things to get to a resolution, they kind of talk their way to a resolution. Mm -hmm. So that was, it was good, but not great. But the second one made up for it. And uh, I shan't say too much about the second one. But if you like ghost story for Christmas type things, Mm -hmm. if you like Dorian Gray type things, if you like atmospheric audio yarn type things, Mm -hmm. and if you're prepared to listen to something Christmassy, 11 days and two hours after Christmas, then download the Dorian Gray Christmas special because the second episode, really, really good. From thefinish.com. Yeah, the first episode's good. The second episode's really good Mm -hmm. and well worth checking out. Right, that's my brief review of the Dorian Gray Christmas special. Did you listen to them on Christmas Eve? of Christmas. No, I listened to it about a week before Christmas. Oh, that's good. Get you in the mood. Mm. Yeah, it got me in the mood. It's pretty grisly and horrible. And... Hey, that's what most family Christmases are like. Isn't it? <laughs> is there a picture in your attic, JL? Are you telling me I've not aged in, in all the time no. you've known me, Mark? No. It's in his toilet. You're not still telling me. Still look the same. I still look the same. You still look the same. I've not aged. No, not a bit. Are you saying I looked seven before we... Uh... Um, no, I'm just saying you haven't changed. You still look the same age you looked when I first met you. There's a hole You've had in, a hard life. There's a hole underwear. in the picture, isn't it? Just in the neck area. That's where the t- turkiness has come from. But apart from that, everything else is looking pretty good. Ooh. That's lovely. Okay, and speaking of grizzly things... Can you feel the love tonight? Oh my God. If anybody's going to sing on this podcast, I can just about get away with it. 
but only because of my Australian accent. Only because accent. Flat Stanley saved your life. Lee can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I almost thought he meant it then. Come on. Simon. Mm. We're going to be reviewing the Christmas special. Simon. Goodwill to all men. Be nice to Lee just once. I get away with it. Lee gets away with it. Simon's Simon. a musician. I get away with it. Lee gets away with it. Simon is sitting over there and you don't get away with it, Mark. Well, <laughs> that's just that was how it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, vaguely. It's a bit staccato. Come mm. in, June. Oh, all right. God, it was a bit vibrato. <laughs> But then, <laughs> I'm not going to bring up the uh, podcast with Matt Barber last week, mm. but I've heard actually, Lee, that it's you who likes it for Barato. Mm. I don't know what you want about. <laughs> I don't listen to our podcast, as you well know. No, well, in fact, no. a little bit vibrato, a little bit staccato. <laughs> no Moving on. Talking about. Moving on. Partial to a bit of oscillation. <clears throat> oscillation? Mm-hmm. Uh, talking of grisly things, what did anybody think of the scene in The Husbands of River Song where he tears his head open at like 6pm? I loved it. I Yeah, it was I loved it. quite fun. Yeah. I Did anybody think it was too much? I think we all went in Simon, the house. My we wife went... did. Yes, yeah. my wife did. Did she? Yeah. I think the squelching sound as the head opened probably didn't help. I just kind of... Regard. I didn't... Did I miss something in the story as to why that happened was it there just as something a bit grisly just to make yeah. the kids go Ugh. yeah yeah okay much, yeah. Right. so a few of us in the room went ew and <laughs> i just had went that's really good <laughs> i love that idea it was there for the ew factor okay although it had squelchy sounds and you know when he put the ball down with the cash in it it was kind of Squidgy. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, that was all part of the you-ness of it, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was an alien, so it didn't have a real kind of human-esque, human-esque <laughs> brain and bits and pieces. It wasn't blood, was it? It's all black no, and gooey. Just goo, yeah. It wasn't real. <laughs> it was it's TV. It's made with everybody. <laughs> mm. It's worse than Ren and Stimpy. I just thought it was a funny place to keep your balls. Oh my god, yeah! If you've ever seen what they do to, <laughs> if anybody keeps their balls in their head, well. That's an you see worse things on SpongeBob SquarePants. Exactly, the things they put him yeah. through. Actually, you see worse things on SpongeBob SquarePants, don't you? Did you just? That's what you just said. Oh, I thought it was SpongeBob. <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> No, you're being kind to me. I'll, I'll, I'll drop now. When was that? When was I being kind? <laughs> <laughs> Where's JR? What have you done with him? Well, I'll say it, this, it would have been just as good without that bit, if you ask me. Oh, yeah, but this is, I said, as I was saying with Matt last it's week, this is one of those bits where you walk into the playground on Monday morning and all the yeah. kids turn to each other and say, hey, did you see the bit where yeah, he yeah. his head open? You know, yeah, that is. Funny. And when we were kids, I mean... That was a long time ago, obviously. That was the clam shot, wasn't it, really? It's, it's barely any different, although done slightly more technically technical... Then, uh... Very well, very well described there, JL. <laughs> you are tired. a man of words. That's I'm why, tired. That's why you're a journalist and we're not. Yeah. yeah, but I only ever write my reviews when I've got a thesaurus open oh. on the PC. Um, um, it would be just as good if they just had Velcro in their heads rather than well, that's slime. essentially what it was because he stuck <laughs> yeah. it back together. 
You wanted it, it was... to be the Slitheen back again, didn't you? The little zips. Yeah, it was a gooey version of Velcro. Yeah, speaking of the Slitheen, it's not all that different from their mum zipping their heads yeah. and pulling their bodies this off. This is true. Very true. And fact, I let's thought that was more grizzly because it. it was red inside and it was the hollowed out shell of a human. Going back to when we were kids, and specifically when you two were kids, <clears throat> it's... No, and pointing doesn't really work in audio. Um, no, because so... I was trying to work it out, but actually yeah. it's all three of you. One of your, I mean, all three of you, one of your defining early-ish memories of Doctor Who is of an alien pulling his head off mm-hmm. and revealing a green one-eyed head underneath. Mm-hmm. Really, it's basically exactly the same thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, but realised slightly more. Technically technical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Okay, then. Right, I'll tell you what we're going to do now. We're going to mark this episode, mm. and then at the end of the podcast, I'm going to ask you to remark it and see if I've persuaded you otherwise. You crazy fool! That is crazy, isn't it? Mm. It's also <laughs> stupid because let's face it, nobody's going to change their mark, are they? And I'm not going to try and persuade anybody of anything because, well, I've got to be honest. If you've heard the podcast from last week, I thought it was good, but mm. I didn't think it was spectacular. Mm. Mm. You might persuade me. I'm quite kind of all naive. Okay then, <laughs> Lee Mark. Give it a mark out of ten. I am going to say nine. Ah, Simon, give it a mark out of ten. It narrowly misses a nine for me. It's an eight for me. And it's... This would be Lee. Narrowly misses a seven. It's an eight. Mm. Okay, and I gave it an eight, and I thought mine was a high eight too. Hmm. All right, well, that's it then. I've got a few <laughs> films to... <laughs> <laughs> right, see you later. Bye. Yeah. All right then. Okay, Lee, what did you think of it? Game of two halves, wasn't it? Um, do you know what? I've, when I first watched it, the first half an hour, I was thinking, no, this is all right. It's okay. It's a bit of fun. It's what we expected. A bit of fluff. But when the second half kicked in and we got all that emotional pizzazz... When you say the second half, where are you drawing the point? Because it was basically the point three on the, Well, yeah. Uh, yes, okay. There was half was an hour on the off? planet. <laughs> there was half an hour on the planet, 15 <clears throat> minutes on the spaceship. and From the spaceship, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, though I, the spaceship was really good, but there's a lot of kind of squelchiness, and I thought the aliens were great, and the Maitre D was brilliant, yes. um, the alien Maitre D. Um, that was really nice, there's a lovely little section there, but the end piece, yeah, the emotional lift was just beautiful. It was fantastic, I enjoyed every second of that. And it was really nice, the moment she is holding we'll on. We'll get into the She's end holding bit on. in a bit, I think. She's, all right. Because <laughs> I think it's you, we've got to really have a discussion about that yeah, in right. and of itself, haven't we? Really, mm-hmm. Mark, go on, give us some thoughts about the Christmas special. Then I thought, um, put it in a, a slightly different way. It's rather like when you've had a really good meal and you have that sort of palate cleanser before you go on to your next course. So series nine, I really enjoyed it. But it was quite intense, and by the time you get to that final episode, you know, they've all been through the ringer, and you just need something light. Um, So this was kind of like an amuse-bouche, where you just sit there and you let it wash over you. It's just light, frothy, fun, Um, and then you get to that final section where you get the pathos sort of kicked in as well, so it's got a bit of guts to it as well. It's not just a light piece of fluff. In that respect, it reminded me a lot of The Girl Who Died, in that for the first 35 minutes, it's a romp. Mm. Very funny, lots of stuff going on, 
nothing seems to be of any terribly great import. And then you get to the last 10 minutes and you realise that the first 35 minutes have actually quietly and subtly mm. been building up to this. Yeah. And suddenly you get 10 minutes that absolutely, you know, kicks you in the gut. Yeah. Mm. I so, thought it was a great chance for Pink <clears throat> Capaldi to really show it can do comedy-wise. Um, I just really loved every minute of him on screen. And I thought the dynamic... I thought grew. this was the first... Oh, I was going to bring that up. We'll bring that up in a minute, the dynamic mm. between him and yeah. the I thought this is the first time where there's been two or three scenes where I didn't think he did it. Mm. Really? Yeah. Well, you're wrong. Um, Which scenes? I the bit where he walks into the TARDIS and does all that stuff. I yeah, thought he went. I agree. I thought he went too far over the top, and it didn't convince me that he was doing it in character anymore. It just felt like he was doing it for the cameras. You know, it didn't feel like it was in the Doctor's character. But it wasn't, felt... Wasn't it supposed to be slightly out of the Doctor's character? That, that was what no, I yeah, wanted doing it. Yes, it? yes. But it felt like rather than doing it in a sarcastic way that the Doctor would have done, he was doing it in the sarcastic way that the Doctor would have done, amped up for the cameras. It is a TV show, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean? What yeah. I'm saying is everything that Peter Capaldi's done has been mm. brilliant and it's all been on a level and then you get to that one scene and all of a sudden that level's broken. I just think he's having fun, isn't he? It really? was great fun. It was, mm. it was I mean, great fun. And it's but... almost like he's he's he knows that River Song doesn't you know, he knows that River Song doesn't know he's the doctor. So in he's just amusing himself. Yeah. Because she's not even yeah, listening to it. It's to just it. how, yeah. how it played I'm i just did the same thinking, jr with it yeah. i didn't it, it was didn't quite hit the point the writing was brilliant i just thought the performance went too far and it took me out of it Maybe and there were a couple of other it might things be the like direction that. as well actually well douglas mckinnon's usually great and i i've got no complaints about almost any of the rest of it apart from another couple of scenes like that where peter capaldi for me there was, I can't think what it was, there was one bit where there was a couple of jokes following one after another, mm. and the jokes didn't come off, no, and I just fun. thought, I wonder if he delivered them slightly differently, if they would have worked. Because the rest of the writing was so of a piece, yeah. that you think, if a bad joke's in there, is it because it's a badly written joke, or is it maybe because, just for once, the actor has delivered it badly? Mm. But I mean, I don't, well, think, I don't think the word badly can be used on any of it. But well, I, just, I know what you mean. Yeah, it didn't in, hit inconsistently. Yeah, but that's always the thing when you have something that's billed as a comedy, especially the first half is supposed mm. to be like that. Already, <clears> you're you keep saying half, but it's the first fifty minutes. <sighs> to me, that's the first half. Okay, the okay. second. Let's half define was... the three acts then. Well, the first sec- act is on the planet. Second yeah, act is on the spaceship. Third act is Derillion. Yeah, right. But the second and third act to me feels more of one piece almost, as opposed to mm. the first one, which was definitely a farce. Um, it was, you know, there was a moment where he falls in the snow and he laughs. I love all that. I thought mm. that worked really yeah, nicely. Yeah. But you didn't need those jokes. Like you say, the jokes one after another being delivered. There were some times when it just felt like a bit too much. Yeah. And although it was very funny and I really enjoyed it, uh, I couldn't help but feel afterwards, have have they stretched out the... I said this to Brad, it felt a little bit like a half-hour story stretched out to 60 or a 90-minute story shrunk down to 60, but it felt 60 minutes wasn't the right amount of time for it. 
Either way, it could either have been something really short and snappy, or else it could have been something really substantial. Mm. And it kind of fell in between, so it wasn't quite short and snappy, and it wasn't quite substantial. So if it was the 30-minute thing expanded to 60, there were too many jokes, Mm. you know, because you had to fill it up with a lot of jokes. And if it was a 90-minute thing brought down to... See, because that bit on the spaceship, you could have had half an hour of that, I think, rather Mm. than 15 minutes. And the bit on the planet, you probably could have had 45 minutes of that. The bit on the planet could have been an episode, a regular episode of the series by itself. Mm. I think I'm probably being a bit more forgiving just because I tend to see the Christmas specials as a a separate entity. I don't perhaps judge them the same way as I would a a regular episode in the the normal series. Mm. I think in that respect, I think it stands up really well. And also in that respect, sorry. Mm, uh, Carol? That interrupting um, without interrupting, he yeah. says interrupting. But <laughs> <laughs> well, trying not to, I'm trying to let Mark make his yeah, point. But um, is the comedy actors could have it might not have worked, Greg? Da- but I thought Greg Davis was very yeah. good casting, yeah. and I actually thought Matt Lucas worked incredibly yeah. well in that role. Well, Simon, I've not asked you for your sort of overview of it, so mm. um, I think it just. Oh, it was it was like a bubbling kettle that didn't quite boil over. I don't, I, yeah. It, 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 but I, I loved it, and I cer- it certainly improved on second viewing, mainly because my daughters decided to shout all the way, because it was on earlier. My daughters mm. actually were there in the room, but being Christmas Day, obviously, they had other things to do, so yeah. they just ended up yeah. running around and shouting all the time, and I didn't have the subtitles on, and then I was prodding the wife, telling her to stay awake. She was <clears throat> so uh, I watched I tell it again. You what anybody who watched this first time, either low volume or with family around and stuff, mm-hmm. and then watched it sort of properly afterwards, is going to have really missed out because the thing about a comedy is, if you watch it without your concentration on it the first time, the second time you watch it, you're not going to appreciate the jokes because you've already seen them. And they weren't funny because you weren't watching it properly. I don't know. I didn't. I I heard so little. I didn't hear the jokes properly. So I heard. It's not only that. It's down to the delivery as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Comedy is quite different to that of a drama. So just seeing the the lines appear on the screen is different from actually hearing them spoken. Oh, I didn't mean it was a lesser experience. I just Mm. meant it was a different experience in that you kind of you don't get the funny out of it so much as you. I wasn't too bad. My my. First viewing experience was so disjointed that actually I really enjoyed the second viewing. So, um, <clears throat> but no, I, I think I agree with pretty much everything everyone said. Um, but as I say, the comedy actors, I, I, I was fearing Matt Lucas coming in and he was just, but yeah, I yeah. was fearing him being Matt Lucas, but actually in that role, and I think he played it really quite. He played it quite, quite by the way. low key. For yeah, him. absolutely. What, what, what was he? Who was he was he just attached? a messenger. Who was yeah. he attached to? Who he was working just... for River Song, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. You see, now I I'm glad he didn't do too much because I was I was also fearing that Matt Lucas would just it become the Matt Lucas show, you know, the little little Doctor Who Britain or whatever. Mm. But in and he I did he did for... so little. It's and like he held role... it back, he reined it in, and he didn't do that silly little go on. It was like his thing. Oh, it was like his thing in Casanova. He was in Casanova, yeah. and he come in and he just did two scenes, yeah, right. yeah, whatever it was. And he was fantastic in those two scenes because he was playing mm. basically a version of George Storch from the, the Renaissance part, or whatever. Yeah, I imagine the part was written for him because it did absolutely so, yeah. hit all the beats. Didn't yeah, it? Well, but then 
See, I had a real problem with Rufus Hound in Series 9. That just didn't work for me at all. See, I didn't. Uh, I thought he was fine. No. Yeah, I thought he was fine too. Mm. I really it's probably my it. preconception because <clears throat> I'm not that, a fan of his... Just jealous of his beard. No. no. I would be, though, looking at you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Like a, this is like a hipster thing. Is it? I don't know. I'm asking. I'm probably the least hip person in the entire universe, JR. I'm saying looking at the head is more of a hopster thing. Well, perhaps I'm just trying to make up for the lack of hair on top. So you even it out a bit by having it on the chin instead. Gravity and it just yeah, comes yeah, out yeah. naturally in that direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, other than that, uh, it did work on two levels. Maybe that's what Lee's saying about where being a game with two halves because it, it was working on the two levels. There was a meaningful level, and then there was the the, I mean, let's face it. It was, uh, or apart from the fact that it was a liner, it was Stephen Moffat doing uh, Journey, of the, uh, Voyage of the Damned, for that small section. Yeah, it really it was did like feel fifteen like minutes of it, wasn't it? Yeah, in the end. And I think that's as much as kind of. I, I was never a big fan of Voyage of the Damned. I like Voyage of the Damned, but, but you um, know, it's it is what it is. But it was like a condensed down <gasps> thing. I just remembered one of my. I just love the head in a bag stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Is that? I mean, that must have been Greg. What's his face acting? David. Like yeah. Yeah. so funny. Mm. I had me in stitches actually that bit. That yeah, was and funnier. when you say that's my stomach talking, I mean, I love that. that. I was waiting for some better lines, if I'm honest. <laughs> yes, but that whole but... scene in the in the restaurant was was funnier than all of that first half of trying to be funny. All these funny little bits mm. and pieces. Think so. Yeah, totally. I, I well, maybe it totally worked really well. But... It was more subtle. It was more. F- it was funnier the situation was funnier and lovely mm. moments where she's just about to unzip the bag and they all go all hell to the mighty so and so and they've got his head in the bag I thought this is genius that was a bit when I laughed I tell you what I didn't <laughs> one thing I didn't like and this is a personal thing is that the uh, the other husband I can't remember his name Ramon he was, he was Ramon yeah I don't know part of me thought are we supposed to like River for the, for get, what is he a bit of eye candy is that the, the idea that he's just this I didn't get that at all this I yeah, who knows? I mean, it could have been for me. It was like was he famous. He wasn't a great actor, I have to say. Um, he was in the revival of Survivors a few years ago. I don't know anything else he's been in, <clears throat> but that didn't exactly. Maybe go I mean down, he was maybe. all right, but maybe that was the problem. He didn't have a. There was no reason for the, the guy to maybe really be there. Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be playing that kind of yeah. dull character. Well, I, I got the the thing I got out of it was. Uh, he wanted to marry her because he's been, you know, drawn into her orbit because she's such a charismatic person, mm. and she needs a lackey to run around and do stuff for her. And what better way than to marry the bugger? Because if you're just paying somebody, you know, the minute things get hairy, well, he thought the guy you married her. Oh, no, yeah, he? this is it. She wiped oh, it was his the other memory. way around. Yeah, he it was thought... the other way around because she wiped his memory yeah, because yeah. he was getting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He started <laughs> behaving funny once oh, no, they got it wasn't married. Even that, then, yeah. that was quite, I think one that thing was a really I, funny line. I like that from the. No, 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 that still works because he wants to marry her, mm, so he's got to mm. prove himself to her. Yeah. Mm. So she may marry him like half a dozen times, and she wipes <laughs> it every time, and he's still... Because you've got to give him a little reward every now and again, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's that's quite funny. But that that worked for me, because I didn't... Because n- there's no way on earth he was her equal. Mm. No. But like I say, if you're paying somebody to do a job for you, and things get a bit tricky, they bugger off. If somebody wants to marry her and things get a bit tricky, you say, all right, darling, next weekend. And he'll 
do whatever it takes to get to yeah. next weekend. Hold this memory worm for a minute, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I did like in the, this. in the first part where they introduced that element of doubt as to whether she actually did care for the Doctor or not. Because at that point they're having that conversation where mm. she's still not aware of who he is. And uh, I like that. It just kind of gave it that extra level. And then that paid off at the end when she goes into that speech about um, a sunset and how it can't admire you back and all that kind of stuff. Mm, lovely. Mm. Really good. Okay, there's the scene. No, let's... I know we can't because we're just jumping way too far ahead of ourselves and there's a lot to get through. Well, a few things to get through. <clears throat> okay. Okay, the other thing that I didn't think quite worked, and you may all disagree with me or yes, not... Yes, probably. <laughs> ...is... I didn't think, actually, there was that much chemistry between them. And I think part of that is a result of the fact that, obviously, he knows who she is and she doesn't know who he is. So they're not supposed to have that immediate frisson of chemistry you get in a regular romantic comedy. But by the same token, in order for that situation to work, there'd have to be some kind of frisson. Mm, Otherwise, why would you care? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I did think that it just didn't... We've never because seen everybody that. thought when Capaldi was coming in mm. and the Heard River song was going to be in it, everyone thought, right, finally the pairing where you see the fireworks. Yeah, and yeah. you just didn't get to see the fireworks. No, you didn't really. But <clears throat> maybe that was the whole point that we get. We don't get to see the fireworks because that happens in twenty-four years or yeah. two years or <clears throat> one night. Hell of a honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of where it ended up going. But I think in order for the emotional payoff of that to truly work. You had to see that there was chemistry between the two actors. But she that would... ties into what you're saying about the length of the episode. If we had a bit more time, maybe that could have been. Or if you had less time, you wouldn't have missed it so much. But the thing is, if you were to introduce the chemistry between the two characters, you wouldn't have this. I'm not talking this... about the chemistry in the writing. I'm talking about the chemistry between the actors, not between the characters, between the actors. But even but within the right, it needs to be in the writing for the for the actors to. Yeah, it's there in the writing. That's what is I'm it? saying. Well, you think yeah. the chemistry's there from the beginning? No, no, no. What I'm saying is, in order for the situation that he knows who she is, but she doesn't know who he is, to work, you have to have the chemistry between the actors because the people at home have to be rooting for them to get together. They have to be rooting for River Song to find out and for the Doctor to get the reward in so many words, of River Song finding out. Mm. But if there's no chemistry between the actors, you don't care whether she finds out or not. And I'm not saying that I spent 45 minutes not caring whether she found out. I'm not saying there was no chemistry. I'm just saying there wasn't as much chemistry as I think everybody was expecting when they thought, right, this time it's not Matt Smith with Alex Kingston. This Mm. time it's Peter Capaldi. Mm. I think everybody thought, you know, Capaldi and Kingston to sort of smoulder on screen. And I just didn't see any smouldering. But then again, there is this. There's three, you know, three quarters of the episode is them. There's a standoff, isn't there? <clears throat> He's is, enjoying the but... fact that she doesn't know who he is, and she's essentially dismissing him. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was brilliantly written, and I and the way it was directed, mm. sort of papered over it. But I just didn't get that f- electricity between the actors no. that would have really made those scenes sing. Mm. I'm not saying that's necessarily a fault because, you know, here's the thing. When you're doing a TV programme, you've got five weeks to make something. Yeah. You bung the actors in a room or a series of rooms with the lines in front of them and they've just got to 
get on and do it. When you get chemistry in the films, that is because there are a bunch of people in a room getting paid a lot of money to go through a big Rolodex with a million names in it, finding the two that yeah. are going to yeah, have yeah. that chemistry. Mm. And they try people out. Mm. You know, you get months of auditions and stuff. Yeah. When you're in TV, you say, right, you've got that actor, you've got that actor, bung them in a room and just hope it works. And I think everybody expected Capaldi and Kingston to work. And I'm just saying for me, don't think it quite got there. No. I don't think it was like a million miles short. I'm not saying there was nothing. No. I'm just saying, you know, there wasn't that crackle. You can forgive it in your head because, you know, Mm. the the personalities are different. The Doctor's personalities changed as well. But but it it all works beautifully in that last Yeah, I was going to say, I think that... As you say, the last scene where he turns up in his suit makes up for he's it. He's got the screwdriver. Yeah, I think yeah that. that and there you really see a different sort of relationship, probably different to the one as you say everyone was expecting. Well, so. the one in the last scene goes back to the speech she makes yeah. about yeah. <clears throat> the doctor doesn't really love me, mm-hmm. and when she makes that speech, there's two ways you can take that, mm-hmm. and one way is she's just saying this stuff to get the aliens off her back, mm-hmm. so she's making it up, but. She ain't. She's telling the truth there. Mm. She's saying that with absolute conviction. She's not saying that for effect. She's saying it because it's true. And let's face it, I've been saying this for months or years about it being an unconsummated relationship. <clears throat> and I've not been saying it for months never or years. A bathroom. I've not been saying it for months or years because I wanted to be different. I've been saying it for months or years because that is what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And that is what Stephen Moffat's been writing. And all he has done here is you know, put a pin in it. They're almost like fans of each other. That's the way I yeah. see it. He's, the, he's very much a fan of her. He, he, he just stands there and applauds how she how she behaves. Mm. So it's not... Well, she doesn't behave very nicely. Well, I was going to say, she, well, not a, he's, he's not overly impressed no, when, when she's she, talking about killing people. Here's a question then. When before we get them. into the thing I just brought up and the last scene, because it seems we're getting there. Mm. I mean, let's face it, the frivolous stuff is funny and it's frivolous and it's not really worth dwelling on too much but here's a question then okay i said here's a question then and now i forgot what the question was well that's embarrassing isn't it <laughs> you've done that without us interrupting you uh, um, yeah i interrupted you, myself okay, didn't I, I? <laughs> I was talking about being, them being no here's a question yeah there we go i've remembered what it was <laughs> remember to interrupt simon <clears throat> the thing about it is <clears throat> there are certain people who will say river song I mean, it's, River Song's a bad girl, right? Mm. And, oh, yes. oh, yeah. and this relationship, on the surface, is the story of the good boy who falls in with the bad girl, right? Mm. Except, of course, there are all these other levels that we'll get to in a minute. But So, here's the question. Is it appropriate in a series that is still aimed primarily at children to have an aspirational relationship with a bad girl? Is she not a bad example for kids? Because, let's face it, she goes around robbing and killing people. Yes. Is yeah, she own? is a bad example, yeah. So, But this is, is an adventure series, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. He never condones it. I mean, it's a bit like Flash Gordon. It's a bit like Buck Rogers and all these heroes of the past. She looks like them as well, wearing the same kind of outfit. It's it's like a, it's a heroic, heroic thing. And actually, I think that she tries to explain away... Some of her killings, um, doesn't she? Yeah. In the, in the episode. Well, not that it, it should forgive her for that. Well, but, um, mind you, there's that. that don't forget the doctor's line, done actually, stuff as well. Saying about yeah. lines that I wasn't comfortable with. I wasn't comfortable when the doctor says, uh, "River, you're worth. Nobody on this ship is 
worth well, as much as you because are. they're all murderers on the ship. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll yeah. shut up now. <laughs> yeah, that line of that. <laughs> that's a says, good point. A lot of people seem to have missed that. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Why, that's why I like the fact that you know, you've got a whole said that they are lives. You've got a whole they are ship. lives. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But you've got a whole yeah. ship of mass murderers and yeah, yeah. absolutely. Even the staff have to approve that they've yeah, killed somebody killed or whatever. Someone, yeah. Mm. yeah. So in a way, it's like, oh, that gives you a license not to worry about anybody. Oh, no, no. As soon as they said that line in it, yeah. I thought, right, everybody on the ship die. is going to die. Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> and then, when it looked like they weren't going to die, I thought, oh, hang on. And then, two minutes later, they're all dead. And I thought, oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> no. Ramon, who's been saved. Put back well, together again. on the subject of... Is it appropriate to have the Doctor falling for a bad girl in Doctor Who? That last scene on Derillion, or the scene that precedes it, where he decides that they're going to stay and he gives the guy the diamond so Mm. they can build the restaurant, that is the Doctor. It was lovely, but that is the Doctor choosing the moment of River Song's death. He is essentially punishing her for her misdeeds in that moment. This is the first time... This is the first time we've actually watched a story with River Song in it where she does the bad things that otherwise we've only ever heard about. Because mm. all the other adventures that we've seen her in, she's been the Doctor's companion and he's been doing the good things that he does and she's been helping him do the good things he, he does. He says, is this what you do when I'm, I'm not around? This time we get, and it's a great conceit, this time she's the lead He's the companion, and at the end of the story, after she's been doing the things that she does, which involves, you know, stealing and all this other stuff, and essentially murdering people because part of the reason why that ship's crashing is obviously because of the fact that she didn't stop it when she could have. So, although she didn't murder people, she's in some way responsible for the fact that she allowed them to die. Well, the but 11th you... Doctor has to go and visit her in prison quite a lot, doesn't he? So it's well, he not does, like but, it's no not, but we don't actually see it. I've always mm. said this. If you don't actually see something on the mm. screen, as far as the audience is concerned, it's not like that is 100% guaranteed to have happened mm. because anybody can say something in a conversation yeah. and it can turn out afterwards not to be true. Mm. Until you see something on the screen, it's just a possibility or a probability but but at the end of this episode we've seen her doing the bad things that previously we've only ever heard about and then he punishes her by choosing this to be the moment of her death yeah and although she gets 24 years well this is it this was going to be my point is that he speeds it up with the diamonds goes in the <clears> forward and future <throat> gets the thing built and there she is she walks out and it's like okay they're the, the singing towers of really Mordor they're called and she knows this is it and it's almost like... She doesn't quite know. Well, she thinks... Because she, she's got the diary and she knows there's no more space in it. Yeah. She, well, she's worked out. She's this worked is, out. She's worked this is out. the last day. So when he said... But, but he never... This is quite important. He never clarifies it. No. So there's always that ambiguity in her mind. Yeah. Whereas he's completely clear. So he's chosen a punishment for her that she's not quite sure whether exactly, it's the punishment Exactly, but that's she what I mean. It it's so much more powerful when she holds <clears> her breath. And then he said, and she says, how long is a, a night here? And, he, and then he says, 24 hours, which 24 I... 24 years. Sorry, 24 years, which I think everybody in the audience went, oh, that's so mm. good. That's so clever. Because I did. And she went, oh, you know, yeah. thank God I've got 24 years <laughs> to spend. And actually, it but may not even get... be 24 years because they can hop off and come back, hop off and come back. 
No, I don't think there's going to be any hopping. I Why think not? this is no because uh, because this is the punishment he's chosen for her. Know, she can she's... stay here for twenty four years Would you? with him in a relationship that's not going to get consummated. Still, you can read that on his face as clear as day in that last scene. He's 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 melted a bit towards her. Mm. You know, he, it's not that he doesn't dislike her. He likes her well enough. He's not in love with her. He's melted a bit towards her at the end there. He said, she's a bad person. And I'm going to, you know, none of this is ostentatious in the dialogue. But essentially that story is... I felt it was. Not in the dialogue. No. Essentially that story is him saying, she's a bad girl. I'm going to punish her. And at the end he melts a bit and gives her 24 years. But essentially that's 24 years in a hotel with him. Which is still a prison in a way. Yeah, and even more of a prison because she spends that 24 years with a guy she's completely in love with and he still doesn't consummate the relationship. Because I do not think that at any point that relationship is going to get consummated. Has anybody gone back to Silence in the Library to see what she says? Because I'm sure she says, yeah. Oh, yeah. do you know what? Sure there is a, my doctor. There is a beautifully is edited fan yeah, video. I've seen that. It's, it's really great, good, isn't yeah. it? Where they edit together Silence mm-hmm. in the Library and. Right. That that her her basically her death scene, and they edit yeah. in parts of that later. Does, does she say that? Does she say my doctor's older? Um, yeah, no, she she mentions battle, that he turns up with a new haircut and a, a new Don't suit. Don't forget when Silence in the Library was written, Moffat knew oh, was no. taking over and was intending to cast somebody in their forties. So yes. yeah, yeah, the doctor, there was yeah. I know, I know, I know. This is plugging the hole. This is not plugging the yeah. hole. It's making the whole thing. Well, know. here's another question then: Is <clears throat> well, two questions in fact. Because I, when I first heard River Song was going to be in it, my first thought was, she doesn't need to be. We've seen everything we needed to mm-hmm. see. And her story finished in the name of the Doctor, so why would you want to go back and readdress that? And I think as well as her story finished in the name of the Doctor, it finished... Oh, I've spoiled the question now. I'm going to ask you if we're bringing her back. As well as her story finished in the name of the Doctor, I think it finished even better here. Yeah, yeah. It was an even I better so. ending for the character mm-hmm. than you had there. And it wasn't that ambiguous, was it? It was, it was straight, no, it really, the nub of it, really. Yeah, basically. And one thing I've heard people say is, oh, if you don't know who River Song is, that episode wouldn't make any sense. Oh, my God, they rammed it down your throat enough times. Mm. And that scene at the end, you know, it was... It wasn't like the dialogue didn't go over and over the fact Actually, that this was it, going to be her last night before she died. It kind of plugged a hole in the kind of <clears> substance <throat> of their relationship. It kind of made sense of it all in a lot of ways. And like you say, I wasn't aware well, there was a he, hole. I thought it had all been resolved. But time-wise, it had all been resolved. But emotionally, I don't think it had. Well, this is one of those things that Stephen Moffat does. And like I say, I saw oh, it. Sorry, they're sniggering at me plugging holes. Well, so. Matt plugged enough holes last week for all of us. Plug Lee's hole. Lee's hole. He didn't just plug Lee's hole, he plugged Simon's as well. No. Oh, yeah. I yeah, but... It's a right old hole plug-in session. Your hole was a bit too roomy, so in the end he just concentrated on Lee. <laughs> Is there an echo? <laughs> <clears throat> I've lost my train of thought now. Lost my down Simon's hole. <clears throat> what was I saying? Well, before I was. You, I said... Before you started sniggering, Mark... At least started it. Oh my god! It's like I said. I thought the timeline had made, been resolved, but emotion, emotionally, it hadn't. Stephen Moffat is not one. <clears throat> one of the common complaints during the Matt Smith years was that things didn't add up and didn't make sense. Mm. Oh my god! These two can't even look at each other now. <laughs> Go on. And I, for me, 
A lot of that was due to the fact that Stephen Moffat doesn't like spelling things out. He likes the audience to put two and two together. I like that. I like that too. Some people really don't like it. And that was the whole thing with the silence. And I've said this for years. The resolution to the TARDIS exploding at the end of Series 5 is the silence at the start of Series 6. You even get that line of dialogue in the episode, silence will fall. Yeah, what kind? What more clue do you need mm, yeah. than that? They you were there. That. You just didn't see them because <laughs> yeah. you don't remember them. Yeah, mm. you know, it just seems so obvious to me, and yet so many people didn't get it because he didn't spell it out. Mm. And I, that was the common complaint during the Matt Smith years: he's not spelling things out enough. So now he started spelling things out, and with the Peter Capaldi, he's writing essentially the same kind of Doctor Who from a different angle. It's less fairy tale and more sci-fi. But it's still essentially the same sort of thing. But he's spelling things out just that little bit more. And in Heaven Sent, Heaven Sent, Hellbent, he didn't spell out stuff about the hybrid. So again, this, the same people were complaining about that episode. I don't like it. He didn't spell it out. He didn't need to spell it out. It was just so obvious. He gave you every single clue you needed to get to the solution. He didn't need spelling out. But here... He's gone back to the River Song storyline, and like I say, I always saw it as an unconsummated relationship, but a lot of people didn't. So what he's done is, he said, right, this is where he was expecting to leave Doctor Who. He knew he was going to have a series with a Christmas special at the end, and he probably didn't know when he was writing them quite how many weeks would be between. So Christmas special was going to be separate. It could never be episode 13 of that series. Although I think in some ways it was, but I discussed all that with Matt last week. So he said, right, I want to finish all my storylines with episode 12, and then I've got episode 13, the Christmas special. What do I do with that? And he could have done something that was completely unrelated to anything, but like with Time of the Doctor, where he spelled out all those things about the silence and Trenzalore that were things that had previously been ambiguous... And he used time of the Doctor in some ways to dot some I's and cross some T's for people who need that. With this episode, he said, right, let's fish River Song out. Let's do that story that we only ever talked about, or that turned up in a little extra mm-hmm. on the DVD. <laughs> let's do that story and let's dot the I's and cross the T's on River Song so that people don't feel that she's an incomplete entity. Because I've not spelled her out. And, you know, you look at it in one way and you think, you know, I don't need things spelling out. I thought River Song was fine. I like the fact there's a little enigma about River Song. Mm. And the people who like fan to do fan fiction like the fact that there's a bit of enigma about mm. River Song. Because that that's the space that opens up for you to slot your fan fiction in. Yeah. Now, all those... I's are dotted and all those T's are crossed and it's a bit like that character feels and this is not a complaint this is just a question of taste it's a bit like that character's been put in a box mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah because aside from that 24 years that we don't see it feels like we've we've seen every meeting now we've seen mm-hmm. every yeah, yeah yeah I'm I'm sure probably because I've not gone through all the dialogue. I'm sure there are things in the dialogue where they've talked about things we've not seen but it seems oh, yeah, like we've seen... Tea and Asgard or something. That's one thing. It feels like we've seen everything there was to see. Yeah. yeah. But we, ha- like, we haven't quite, like you say, Tea and Asgard. I'd like to see that episode at some point. <laughs> well, it depends. Depends <laughs> whether there's any aliens there. Two things about that. One, 
<clears throat> okay, I did have two things about that. Really not with it Bloody today, hell. am I? <laughs> okay, two. <laughs> <laughs> I might come back to one if I can oh, remember yeah. what it was. I can't, I can't believe that you actually thought you remembered two and it hasn't slid into the one place. No, no, no. There were two things about that that were entirely separate. Oh, right. One was about River Song, one was about the Doctor. Okay. So I'll do the one about the Doctor, and hopefully at the end of this, the one about River Song will come back to me. Right. But the one about the Doctor is more important, which is why I saved it for number two. <laughs> but as soon as I've forgotten number one, I'm going to have to do number two. You're slotting something into the number two place. Blimey, it just gets worse. That's what happens when you spend a week in Matt's living room. <laughs> Spacious, is it? Um, Specious? <laughs> okay. One thing that I've heard people complaining about since Heaven Sent is, and Time of the Doctor started it, and now you've had Heaven Sent, and I've heard it phrased, oh, we're getting this all the time now. We've had it precisely twice in Time of the Doctor and Heaven Sent, where the Doctor does loads and loads of years Hmm. in a single episode. And, you know, he goes into Hmm. the episode at 903 and comes out 1,200 years old. Hmm. And some people are saying, that's just... You know, it, it does the character a disservice Why? to have wasted 300 years of his life on a 45-minute episode. Why? Th- this kind of it's complaint. It's not a waste, though, is it? There's and, loads of stories <clears throat> packed in that. But, and with Heaven Sent, that doesn't even stack up because Heaven Sent is just like two weeks of his life mm. repeated, you yeah. know, mm. X billion, billion times. times. Yeah. yeah. So that, that doesn't even stack up there. So he doesn't even remember the billion times, does he? Mm. Oh, but... And, uh, an adjunct to that complaint was that um, Hellbent goes to the end of the universe. And it's like he spends four and a half billion years going to the end of the universe in one episode. And then the next episode, he gets in the TARDIS and goes to the end of the universe again or whatever. It's Doctor Who. You go to the start of things, you go to the end of things. Mm. That's kind of how it works. Uh, you know, it's not like Ross T. Davis didn't arbitrarily pick the year five billion and kill off the planet Earth. I mean, this, Utopia, this is kind of how modern Doctor Who works. Mm. It does the stupidly big things because the kind of casual audience, you throw a stupidly big thing in front of them, but you give it a clever story with interesting characters. They even do it. Sorry. And this, it's, the stupidly big thing is just a high concept to sell the episode mm. so that you follow the characters and the story. And the 300 years on Trenzalore... Although I thought that was a really nice way to finish The Last Doctor. Yeah. And it fit in completely with his character. And it fit in completely with the tone of the series. And it made a beautiful episode. Essentially, that's the high concept thing that sells the character to the audience. Do you know think it's nice as well? Is that the fact that each incarnation gets a lifetime <clears> as well? Mm. Do you think this is more of a modern series thing where people have to really pick apart the science of it? Well, or... this is what I was getting to, Mark. Okay, I, I can't science. imagine anyone Doctor watching <laughs> Creature from the Pit or uh, Leisure Hive and thinking, oh, well, you know, that's that's not right. It's just Well, this is where I'm going, Mark. So uh, the complaint about this episode was Peter Capaldi's Doctor, at the end of this episode, spends 24 years on a planet with River Song. And he... Yeah, like I say, it's not in the dialogue, but I think it's absolutely implicit in that last scene. He's not going anywhere. He's going to spend all 24 of those years there. Yeah, but to a time lord, that's just a blink of an eye, isn't it? Mm. See her off. Mm. Still 24 years. Though. But by the same token, mm. you go in at the start of that episode and he's 1,203, and at the other end of it, he's 1,227. Yeah. This is the complaint. That's 24 years we didn't get to see. Right. The second <laughs> Doctor... 
what? It's a story about time and a time lord. Forever. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Do you know, years passed during the Infinite Quest. What? There's a point in the Infinite yes. Quest yeah, there is. Yeah. where the Doctor buggers off with a, with a bird that's a baby, isn't it? And then he comes back and it's fully grown and it's, uh, you know, and he's... He's been off. I thought you were being place. derogatory about women for a minute. I know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If you want to get really picky about yeah. it, yeah, well, the bloody car. I was about to get really picky in it. And he, he burns a way... whole load of his life in Age of Steel. Is it or one of the ones where he blows on the little bit of the yeah? Um, it's Rise of the Cybermen. It's the Rise of the Cybermen. Yes, yeah. so he blows on the Tardis element, mm. and he goes, "Oh, I've given away ten years of my life." The Second Doctor has a 500-year diary. Mm-hmm. So, presumably, the second Doctor, and I think at some point he says, I'm 450 years old. The fourth Doctor says in, I think it's Pyramids of Mars, that he's 750. That is 300 years right there. The second Doctor's stories, up until War Games, are pretty much all following directly one after the other. third Doctor has a series of three companions and unit. And we know that that entire tenure lasts five years because that's what we see in all the other characters in that tenure. The fourth Doctor then goes off with Sarah Jane Smith and those stories for the first two years of that series all follow one after the other precisely from the moment one finishes to the moment the next one starts. Those 295 missing years all happen in the scene in Robot where the Doctor vanishes and comes back seconds <laughs> later. That is 300 years done like that. In an episode of the classic series, anybody who's going to bitch about a story as beautiful as Time of the Doctor... Simon, we need to write it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's already written, because oh. that's where Face of Evil takes place. Shit. Where he goes to uh, <laughs> fix Zoanon and various exactly. other things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, these people who will pick up on a particular thing about the new series they don't like, and all that's happening is exactly the same thing as Russell T. Davis did in Aliens of London, where he takes Rose back 12 months later instead of 12 hours later, and we suddenly, because we've seen the fact that she's got a family, but it's only in that moment where we actually see that she's got a family who've got emotional lives in the programme. Because let's face it, Mm. it's all very well killing off Aunt Vanessa and saying Tegan's a free agent. But somewhere in Australia, she's got a mum and a dad who are wondering what the loving F has happened to their daughter. (laughs) Mm. And why has Aunt Vanessa disappeared? And you get... The same's happening with Clara, but yeah. And you get Perry, and they deliberately give her a dysfunctional relationship with her parents, and you get Ace, and they deliberately give her a dysfunctional relationship with her parents, because by this point in the 1980s, Doctor Who can't exist outside of the emotional bubble anymore. You know, companions in the 60s were coming and going hither and thither without any... Uh, Dodo. Well, without any... They don't go uh, Without the series bothering to relate back to the fact that they've got relatives at all. But by the end of the 80s, you know, uh, you can't do this anymore. So they give these characters dysfunctional relationships with their families Mm. but for god's sakes i don't know how dysfunctional you have to be to imagine that those parents aren't wondering what the loving f has happened to their children (laughs) who have disappeared off the face of the entire planet russell t davis in aliens of london addresses this 
And all that's happened since then, with things like this, with the 300 years on Trenzalore, with the 24 years at Derillium, it's not Stephen Moffat addressing something that the classic series didn't do. It's Stephen Moffat addressing something that the classic series did, but because it didn't have an emotional life, brushed under the carpet and nobody ever speaks about. In the classic series, the Doctor jumps in age by incredible amounts. I think he's... I don't know, something like a thousand years old by the time he's the seventh Doctor. Again, that's another 250 years on from the fourth Doctor. What happened to those 250 years? Mm. Because, you know, you only have to look at the companions to know that we're not seeing it on screen. Mm. If these companions uh, are travelling, you know, uh, consecutively and overlapping with one another with the fifth Doctor, we know that the fifth Doctor's, you know, entire tenure is exactly the amount of time it's on screen for three years because otherwise, you know, Turlow would have ended up in his 60s. So, you know, this thing where the Doctor's age jumps has never made any kind of logical sense. All Stephen Moffat's doing is writing a version of Doctor Who where things like that have got a kind of logic to them. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe we spent all that time talking about that. Okay, talk about something else. I've just remembered another uh, adventure that doesn't go appear on screen is that River mentions a time when there were two doctors, when there was two of them running around. It was an offhand comment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Show. Uh, that'll be the big finish ones then, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, there's plenty of stuff you can slot in. There's mm. plenty of places to put it. I mean, let's face it, they, they meet and then part and meet and part. So it's not like their adventures are running concurrently. Meet and part. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, let's. Well, right, what else is there about Husbands of River Song then? Well, I mean, I talked about a lot of stuff last week with Matt, but do you want me to bring up some of Was those any things? Was any of it relevant? Well, yeah. Okay, in, I tell you what, in this episode, River Song is playing Clara Oswald. In the sense that... Isn't she just playing herself? <clears throat> no, uh, in the sense that... When you write something... It's a crazy idea. When you write something, there's a text and there's a subtext, right? Or if you're Stephen Moffat, there's a text and there's about 15 million (laughs) subtexts. The word we used last week was layered. Stephen Moffat's writing is incredibly layered. And one of those layers in Series 9 is, that's the story of a, a marriage that breaks down for one of the people, but not for the other. Mm. And the way that series ends is that one of the people walks away from that relationship when the other person isn't ready. And as much as Heaven Sent is about grief for somebody who's died, I don't think it's about grief for somebody who's died. I think on this subtextual level, it's grief for somebody who's walked away from a marriage. I think it's about the husband who's been left by the wife when the husband thought everything was hunky-dory and the wife's just turned around one day and said, I've not been in love with you for the last three years. I'm off. And to me, Face the Raven is the wife walking away from the relationship on this particular substrata of text. (laughs) Face the Raven is the wife walking out on the relationship and just leaving him stone cold. Heaven sent is that period of grief you have, you know, for the next few hours or few days mm. when you're just 
sitting at home in the living room, staring at the walls with, uh, I know it's over on at full blast from the Smiths, thinking the whole world has come to a stop. And then hell bent is you digging yourself out of that chair in the living room and saying, no, I'm not accepting this. I'm doing something about it. And Hellbent ends with the Doctor having spent 45 minutes desperately trying to do something about it. And at the end of the episode, Clara still walks away. And the Husbands of River Song is 10 years later when you're walking down the street and you see this woman that you used to be married to and you say, hey, how are you doing? And all those feelings bubble up inside you and you're having this conversation with her and 10 minutes into this conversation, you suddenly realise she doesn't even remember who you are. And that's what The Husbands of River Song is about. And at the end of The Husbands of River Song, you've gone through... Sounds like something out of Tom Baker's autobiography. <clears throat> because this happens. You meet somebody 10 years later that you've been in a relationship with. They don't remember who you are. And because they haven't remembered who you are, and because you've moved on somewhat in the meantime anyway yourself. Mm. And at the end of that 15-minute conversation, when they suddenly realise who you are, you're just thinking, ah, forget it, you're not worth it anyway. And essentially, the way Husbands of River Song ends is with the Doctor saying, and I know there's this amelioration in the 24 years, but essentially the episode ends with the Doctor saying, you're not worth it anyway, because this is the point at which I'm terminating this. So, I mean, that is a subtext that runs throughout the whole of 2015. I just me. like the head in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I'm saying yeah. that on particular levels. I think this is a, I think this is a, one of those things that some writers will do subconsciously and some will write consciously. Mm. You put, well, it doesn't matter what you're writing, you'll put elements of yourself in there. Do you think he even knows he's writing stuff like that? I know. I think Stephen Moffat absolutely knows he's writing that. I think there are other writers who would write that. I don't. But I I think Stephen Moffat does. I don't think it's as defined as that. No, I don't think it's as defined as that. I'm trying to explain it in a more defined way than it's there. I think there are are emotional buttons and he can draw on those sorts of things. That's what I'm saying. He's drawing on the emotions of a situation like the one I've described. Mm. So I'm not saying he's written exactly that situation, but I'm saying that is an example of the situation that he's drawing the emotions from. Mm. But what he does really brilliantly is he says, right, this is Doctor Who. So he uses the time travel and the fact that you've got Gallifrey and all this stuff to tell that story, you know, the confession dial. You know, anybody else, if you want to write the Doctor in a funk for a 45-minute episode, (laughs) you just write a story where the Doctor's got no companion and he goes to a place and gets angry with everybody. You know, but Stephen Moffat says, anybody can write a story where the Doctor's angry with everybody for 45 minutes. I will use the tools at my disposal to tell that story in an entirely new way that is... And you know how I always say, if you're writing Doctor Who, whatever story you're telling, you've got to make it Doctor Who. So he uses the confession dial to tell that story about grief or about, you know, having been left by the woman you thought was still in love with you. He uses that 45 minutes to tell that story entirely through the tools of Doctor Who. Um, You know, imagine who was the guy who sat down and designed that confession dial on 
on Gallifrey. <clears throat> what a fiddly job that must have been. Well, it's just a little bit of the Matrix, isn't it? Oh, just, yeah, but they explain it. It's just know. a little bit of the Matrix. A little bit of Matrix. I love the explanation for it in Hellbent that a lot of people seem to have forgot. That it's not supposed to be a torture chamber. It's supposed to be a way of gathering up your thoughts so that they can be entered into the Matrix. And they yeah, just use it on chamber. him as a torture chamber. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be... It's supposed to be, you know, uh, again, this is not the perfect explanation, but there's a Zan explanation. Say you spend the last three months of your life in a care home being cared for, and you're going over the thoughts of what you've done for the last 70 years or however long you've lived. The confession dial is essentially your three weeks, your three months, whatever, in a care home going over the thoughts of what you've done for your life. Except somebody's gathering them up in this... But it's machines, not, it's not quite as de- the matrix. De- definite as that, is it? Because no, that's what I'm he's saying. Now, he's now out of it, so he's going to need another one because he's going to be around for a bit longer. Well, that's the point. You're not supposed not... to come out of it. I bet he has. So he's going to need another one, isn't he? Well, he is. Well, but other time lords don't because that's the point. This is what they get given when they die in their last regeneration and they don't come out of it. It gets plugged into the matrix. That's how it's supposed to work. This is all in Hell Bentley. I know. Speaking of which, another complaint about how Ben. I mean, what's on my soapbox <laughs> now? I'm going to stay there. Pull up a chair. One of the things. Just going to get my tea. <clears throat> one of the things that has been a common complaint about how Ben, and this is not specific to old school fandom. This is basically a complaint made by new school fans as well. Is that you've spent all this time looking for Gallifrey, and then when you bring it back, you don't do the things that everybody was expecting with it. Like, they all throw a party because the Doctor's back, or, you know. <laughs> or, That'd be great. the Time Lords are the villains for the last story. They're not the villains for the last story. Because Stephen Moffat, another thing he does is he says, right, okay, I could tell that story, but that's a really dull story, so instead I'll tell a better one. The Doctor has lost Clara. Whether she's dead or whether she's the woman who walked out of the relationship, or whatever level of text you want to lay on the end of Face the Raven, that is a moment of absolute devastation for the Doctor. And then he spends... And this is the thing about Heaven Sent. It's four and a half billion years or something. And although he doesn't experience all four and a half billion years, because he keeps repeating, at the end, because it's been spent in the confession dial... Although he didn't experience all of it, he remembers all of it because it's the stuff that's been absorbed by the confession dial. So when he gets expelled from the confession dial at the end, he's expelled with all the things that he did while he was in there, which uh, I'm putting this on it, but I read this in the way the story's written. So I think at the start of Hellbent, he has not the experience of but the memories of all four and a half billion years he spent in that confession dial. Well, there's I that scene, that's... isn't there, where she asks him how long and he's quite sheepish about it and he won't actually I come out and I think he just doesn't it. know. 
Perhaps he doesn't no, I think, know. No, I think he, he has. A, I think it's as far as he has an awareness of what's happened. Yeah, yeah he knows he how long. It, knows he knows how long it will take. Theory, he knows things how long have been repeated. Yeah, he knows how long it takes. He to doesn't. Get the he doesn't look maze. shocked when they say for roughly four and a half. Well, he knows minutes. that much from the position of the stars, mm. from where he went in and where he came out. Mm. But no, I think he remembers it. Oh, yeah, I don't. I don't because I, I think do. There's a certain level yeah. of Well, I tell you why I think he remembers it because. You go into it's hell. It's like an MP3 then. version. It's condensed. <laughs> well, because otherwise you would go mad, wouldn't you? But but the, well, this is it. When you say go he's mad, he's a tad narked when he gets out, isn't he? Exactly. <laughs> Which is then let him take some books in with him. When you say <laughs> he goes mad, there are two ways of reading the expression. He goes mad. One of them is he's insane, and the other one is he's angry. Mad also means angry, right? Yeah. Now imagine four and a half billion years of anger because this is the way I mean I don't think this is the way I read it I think this is the way Stephen Moffat's written it and he just hasn't spelled it out because he doesn't spell things out because you don't need it spelled out because he gets to Gallifrey this place he has spent all 13 of his lives saving in the day of the doctor Mm. that he has then lost and we know how much that means to him because we see his reaction in the TARDIS at the end of Death in Heaven when he thinks Misty sent him to the right place and it's not there. We see how much that means to him. We've mm. never seen the Doctor in all of his lives react that way before. That is a moment of utter frustration. The most frustrated we have ever seen the Doctor. So we know how much it meant to him to find Gallifrey. Mm. So for something to supersede that, yeah. we know that the emotion of losing Clara is even stronger than the emotion of finding Gallifrey. And that is why Gallifrey only plays a small part in Hellbent, because Stephen Moffat is using Gallifrey to mm. show the audience how much it means to the Doctor to try and save his relationship with Clara. Mm-hmm. And I think all that's quite deliberate. And, of course, with it being what would have been Stephen Moffat's last series, the brilliant thing is he brings Gallifrey back and doesn't do anything with it, so the next guy's free to. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it is brilliant on so many different levels, and I think it's just a shame when people mm. don't see them. You were saying before about how he leaves his gaps, so, you know, if you're doing fanfic or whatever, you can kind of make up your own stories. Do you think someone's going to come up with a theory about Rasslon being in the Sea Devils? Excuse me? <clears throat> <laughs> it's the same actor. Oh, Donald Sumter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe maybe, maybe Donald Sumter <laughs> chose that face because yeah. he had a yeah. fling with the captain of that ship yeah. once long and long time ago. Yeah, I chose this face because I fancied his ass. Let's not forget as well, though, that the Doctor has spent a long time looking, knowing that Gallifrey is, is okay. But just trying to find it, so it mm. was just it was just a relief to find it. But obviously, it wasn't a relief because of all that crap oh, he's been through. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, there's that level to it as well. Yeah, and plus the fact that you know the Doctor when he gets hold of Ga- Russell on, he says, "Get off my planet." But on purely, it's not, it's but not, on purely storytelling terms, mm. to go to Gallifrey and not have it be the homecoming and not have it be a story about the Time Lords is a very deliberate choice on the writer's behalf. Oh, yeah, definitely. So he has to have done that for a reason. And I don't see any other reason than the one I've given. And also, people who are disappointed that it wasn't, you know, 
what they were expecting. You look at Robert Holmes, you know, what he did to change the way that Gallifrey was shown on TV. Now, if he'd just carried on with what had gone before, it would have been all very dry and boring. Mm. But he actually turned them into this really corrupt... Interesting yeah. people. Yeah. <clears throat> well, this is what Stephen Moffat does. He says, here's the toy box. He says, it would be remiss of me if I didn't use the things that were in the toy box. Mm. I think that's what you've got to do when you write something. You can't not use the thing. And this is what Stephen Moffat's... You know, one of the complaints about Stephen Moffat is, oh, there's regeneration energy here, there, and everywhere. Everyone's regenerating. Oh, my God, there's time travel paradoxes here, there, and everywhere. It's always about time travel. These are the tools that are at the series' disposal. Mm. Mm. You can ignore them, or you can say, okay, this is what the series is about. Let's actually use them and yeah. make the series what be I about What I find incredible things. is he manages to still find mileage in a lot of those things. It's just yeah. like in that, in that episode at Christmas, you've got that lovely thing where they crash... Yeah. Mm. And then he quickly goes, crank, crank, crank. You know, and it's the next day. And it's the next day. I don't think anyone's ever done that in the series. It's a little it's bit in like in Pyramids of Mars, where he goes forwards 80 yeah. years to show the future. Yeah. But of it, but, but, but I mean, you'd be doing it all the time, wouldn't you? Eric yeah. Yeah. on Mostly Harmless compared it to the movie of The Time Machine, where he's kind yes. of gradually. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, it's the, but you do yeah. get that in um, Hyde as well. Mm. But, you know, he goes through different periods looking for the ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was so obvious, it's so brilliant, and actually it's, it's just like an Edgar Wright way of doing things where you just cut out the middle man and just go, okay, crank, open door, crank, open door, crank, well, open yeah. door. He opens yeah. the door, it's not ready, mm. shuts the door, goes on a day, oh, it's ready now. Yeah. Gives him a bunch of whatever it is, diamonds or whatever, comes back, build a restaurant, mm. comes back and there's a restaurant built. I thought that was so Douglas Adams, so brilliant. Mm. Well, this well, a, star, is... a starship cruise liner is another Douglas Adams yes. <laughs> thing, isn't it? Mm. Well, this is, there's often... Stephen Moffat often gets compared unfavourably with Douglas Adams. But, and this is probably going to sound like utter heresy, Douglas Adams writes lots of really clever things and he has lots of really clever ideas and he ties them together often in pretty clever ways. But Douglas Adams' stories, and I, I'm not an aficionado by any stretch of the imagination, but I know enough Douglas Adams. You know, I've read the books, I've seen the serials he wrote on the TV. Douglas Adams does it all, but Douglas Adams never really has anything to say about the human condition, about human interaction. It's always all the clever ideas that surrounding people, like these big clouds of spectacularness mm. that detract from the fact that actually when you get down to it, there's a bit of a hole in the middle of Douglas Adams' stories where there's not really any heart there. And I tell you what, I think... I don't know. He has tried it in mostly Hitchhikers, but I don't think that was good. I'd prefer him without that human condition. He concentrates on how ridiculous we are. Yeah, but without... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying there's no heart. I'm just saying, if you look at his stories, you know, they're not... They're, they're, they're telling you frivolous things, but they're not really telling you... I mean, it's a train of thought. Most and it, 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 yeah. it is, the number 42 is your perfect example. <laughs> He's telling you lots of frivolous things. It's bloody He's funny. not really telling you anything that substantial. You spent a long time trying to work out that number. But <clears> if you look at like Arthur Dent from Hitchhikers, it's all about the sort of mundane life mm, that we lead, but then it's it? kind of expanded on on a universal level. Yeah. Even to the point of like the... Planning permission, you know, but no, yeah, like but 
He's, but those are all the fripperies of a mundane life. Mm. And I don't think there's any such thing as a mundane life. I think there are mundane bits of life, but I think life itself is spectacular. Mm. And I think he, by concentrating on the mundane fripperies, he's kind of missing out on the heart and soul of what it means to be a human being. He's talking all about the, what's the word I'm looking for? He's talking all about the life, universe, and everything. The fluff. You know, no, that's not the word, but yeah, he's talking all about the fluff, all about the things that happen to us, but he's not talking about the people they happen to. No. He's talking about but the I, things that happen. Do you know what? Happen. I think that yeah, he, I see what you're saying. He, is, he only kind of wrote that way because he could write it and he just did it. It's like a train of thought. Yeah, but two Each things book. about that. One, it's I think that's the reason why he suffered so much from... Um, uh, what's it called when you can't think of something next thing to write? Um, writer's, writer's block. block. Writer's block. I think that's why he suffered from writer's block. Because if you're not writing about something, then it's very difficult to find your starting point. You know, if you don't have mm. um, something substantial to say, it's very difficult to find your way into telling the story. Mm. And I also think that in spite of the fact that Stephen Moffat gets compared unfavorably with Douglas Adams... I think he's the Douglas Adams with the heart and the soul. Mm, mm. I think Stephen Moffat, you know, heresy to say it, I think Stephen Moffat is a far better writer than Douglas Adams. And don't get me wrong, I think Douglas Adams is a brilliant writer. I just think Stephen Moffat is an even more brilliant writer. Do you know, what? I think mm. Douglas Adams might possibly agree with that. But, I mean, it, it, writing is, a, is writing, isn't it? I mean, what Douglas Adams did to <clears> me was <throat> lots of tiny little jokes, japes, Gags, set pieces, and he managed to tie a few things up. Not only that, mm. with Douglas Adams, it wasn't just about the writing. It was, he was so far ahead of his time. Oh, you know, he yeah. predicted mm-hmm. the yeah, internet yeah. and all sorts of amazing stuff. Well, I actually, mean, that was done in 1909 by Ian Forster. But anyway, carrying. Ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but he he was very quick to get clued into new technology and how things were going to be in the future. Yeah. And actually, what his writing was progressing when you read the Dirt Gently novels. There's there's a lot more heart in those actually in the Hitchhikers. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's entirely absent. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, you know, if you look at Douglas Adams as a whole, yeah. this is kind of what. Yeah. Oh, and equally, I'm not making excuses for him. But I'm just saying it's. Yeah. Oh, he's a brilliant writer, and I yeah. love him. But I just think Stephen Moffat takes all the best, not all the best things. He takes a certain percentage of what Douglas Adams was, and instead of going into all the frivolous things, instead he brings heart and soul to it. Mm. So you get, so you get the clever connections that are mm. the kind of thing that Douglas Adams would make. But instead of connecting them with, uh, what's the word I want to, uh, bureaucracy. Mm. That's the word I was looking for before. Yeah. A lot of Douglas Adams is about bureaucratic things. And I don't necessarily mm. mean literally bureaucratic, yeah. but I mean metaphorically bureaucratic in that a lot of Douglas Adams writing is about how things work. And why that's, you know... It's almost satirical. <clears throat> yeah, mm. why it's ridiculous. <clears throat> but Stephen Moffat, instead of saying, this is how things work and why it's ridiculous, it's kind of, he says, okay, this is how things work. You can see it's ridiculous. Let's forget about how ridiculous it is. And instead, let's give you a subtext about why this is important for us. Mm. And I think, you know, that's what makes him, you know, that much better a writer. It was a lovely line, actually. It's talking about the satire. It's a lovely line in... Um... Husbands of River Song, where he, he uh, had a go at the royalty, yeah. saying, You're up there, you've been given all these privileges, well, and I thought I want to help you, sort of thing. Mm. That was great. There's a lot of great lines, actually, in Husbands of River Song, mm. and I'm one for forgetting dialogue, so I can't call any of them to mind, but there are some great, 
lines in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else anybody wants to bring? I love up? the UFO at the beginning, a proper flying saucer. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a very silly looking one. <laughs> we got we got two double hitters though, haven't we over Christmas, and um, and I know you haven't seen it yet, but you obviously you got Stephen Moffat and Douglas McKinnon, Sherlock and I Doctor know. Who. I mean. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen Sherlock. Blimey. Yet. You haven't? No. no. Okay, so it won't say much. Sorry. No, this is one of those I've had a... Worth watching. Well, I've had a few yeah. days in which I've... Uh... I actually, I don't know if I was just in the wrong frame of mind, but I actually found my mind wandering and I was just surfing the internet rather than watching it. Uh, yeah, which is first viewing. Unusual, because like you know, I loved the previous series. I Maybe I should just go back. Again, circumstances helped me in as much as I watched it first time and, and my mind drifted. I ended up falling asleep mm. three quarters of the way through Sherlock mm. and then I went back to catch up on the bit that I missed and it kind of all went... Given how it ended, I, thought, I think that's really important. You did. Really important. <laughs> Otherwise you'd have been very confused. Okay, let's just stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Once again, it's been spoiled for me. I know what they're talking about. Right. Even though I, I haven't I, seen I don't, but all I, all I know is we, that we I've, seen one, I've, no, seen, okay. I, I've seen one picture. Next podcast, we should talk about it, though, because right. it is really interesting. I've seen one picture. Next podcast, but one, because I don't think I'm going to get to see it in the next few days. Okay. I've seen one picture, and they look like they're in the Victorian times, right? That's what I've seen. So it's either The Matrix <laughs> or His Mind Palace. That, those are the two things I can only think. Fancy dress party? Stop. Spoiler. Oh, sorry, spoilers. <laughs> Confession dial? <laughs> <clears throat> TARDIS? It's Hulock for Hulock. real. <laughs> I, I think you're making more links than you need to. You know, yeah. Just go in it as they advertised it in as much as it's just I seen taking the characters and the actors and plonking them back where they originally were to see well, I don't Stephen Moffat's take on it. And just I think just of it like that and up. go into it with a completely blank mind. Okay. That's easy, be easy for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, least trouble is when he comes out of it with a completely blank mind. <laughs> you bitch. He's a monkey. Uh, I said we were going to readdress our scores, but I don't think we need to, do we? Has anybody changed so. their opinion at all? Really? No. So. Four. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else to say about it? I mean, there are loads of things you could bring up and say, oh, what did anybody think of the robot? It was nice and red. Um, it was good. It was. What did anybody think of the fact that it had rotating heads in it? Oh, that I was mean, good. I love that. Yeah, that was actually quite good. And I really oh, yeah. love the fact you used to Matt Lucas's voice at the end. <laughs> so, it's starting to quite enjoy the experience. It's a bit riffy you know? down here. Yeah, it's hilarious that bit, wasn't it? But I actually quite like the um, red. It robot. worked. It worked. It's a Christmas episode, as Mark said. Oh, I tell you worked. one thing that we've not mentioned that I think is definitely worth mentioning and that some people have kind of written off as unnecessary or tacky or seem to have missed the point of was the caption at the end. Oh, that was lovely. Mm. It says... I bet some they people seem to... ever after. But then the whole point is she's only got 24 years mm. so they erase the ever after. Mm. And at the end of 24 years she's going to die so yeah. then they erase and they live. I know, it wasn't so sweet at all. It was really quite... Yeah, it was, it was actually... Oh... This character's going to die. Don't you realise that? Yeah. And here we are putting an opinion in it and saying, this character's about to die. And then they have that It's the opposite as well Disney. about happily ever after, don't they? So, you know, it's... I mean, this is the thing. At the end of a Disney film or at the end of a romantic comedy or at the end of any film, you kind of get a happy ever after moment. And the thing is, it, it, happy ever after doesn't actually mean ever after. It means 
at this point in time they're happy. If you've ever seen Heartburn, which is Meryl Streep and... uh, This is a really interesting example. Rennie Zellweger? No, no, no. This is a really interesting point because not a lot of people, I don't think, have put two and two together here. Heartburn is a film that came out in 1984. It's got Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson as a couple who are breaking up and it's the story of a breakup. Mm. It was written by Nora Ephron. Five years later, when Harry Met Sally comes out, and that's got Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal, and it's a story of a couple who are getting together. It's a romantic comedy. And it's written by Nora Ephron. And when Harry Met Sally is, to a degree, autobiographical, and Heartburn is, to an even greater degree, autobiographical, Heartburn is actually the story of what happens to Harry and Sally after the end of When Harry Met Sally. And so if you watch the two films in that order and forget the fact that it's different actors, you actually get to see the happily ever after, or as it turns out, not quite so happily. Mm. Well, that's really depressing, isn't it? Well, that's the whole point <laughs> of that caption at the end, yeah. is that caption at the end is saying, we're not Disney. Mm. This is Nora is... Ephron related to Zac Ephron? No. I can't blame you for that. Then. <clears throat> What's wrong with Zac Ephron? <laughs> yeah, he has, he's, have to be fair, he has moved on from High School Musical. He's actually a very good actor. He was in that thing that was basically oh, a remake yeah, of all right. That thing. <laughs> Is it Bad Night, Bad Neighbour? No, he was in immediately after the end of the High School Musicals. He did, and this was a stroke of genius, wasn't, his oh, wasn't it? A ghost behalf. thing or something? Or no, 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 no. He did. There was a. Um, Back in 1988, there was a whole spate of movies that came out with Big, which were body swap movies. Yes, 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 yes. Zac Efron does a body swap movie immediately after the high school. Yeah, Yeah, and it's ten years later from all those others, Mm. but it is a really good movie. Mm. But it is designed to showcase a decent actor, and it... a stroke of genius on his agent's behalf because it says right because matey forget, from friends disappears for most of the film because <clears throat> it says forget all the cheesy nonsense you've seen in high school musical here he is acting mm. and from that point forward anybody can choose him for anything mm. because they've seen in this movie his range mm. Mm. so i mean i'm not going to say it's the best movie ever but it's a decent movie no you've seen any movie i can't even remember what it's called though <clears throat> oh you want me to do my reviews oh uh, have you got some reviews? I've got three movies I've seen since oh, the last time. Star Wars yet? We can't talk about that. Yeah, come on, Jeff. So, so talk about Star Wars. Yeah, you three have seen Wars, it. Yeah. No, you no, three no. have seen it. And as you already know from our pre-recording conversation, I have had every last thing. And when I say last, I mean right at the very last scene <laughs> of the film. Spoiled for me already. So you can't... Are we going to spoil for... No. Can we talk about it without... Yeah. We're not going to spoil for Do it without spoilers. Yeah, okay. But I'm... Okay... Uh, I'll lead it. I've not seen it. And to be honest with you, you know that I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, so the fact that it's been spoiled for me is no worse, really, than the fact that I read the Return of the Jedi novel before I saw the film back in 1983. Mm. You know, I'll live. To I'll sum enjoy it up, the film. without spoiling it, I'd say, in my opinion, it captures the spirit you of... You were determined I wasn't going to get to the end of that sentence. Absolutely, yeah, why not? <laughs> Taste your own medicine. Um... I think You'll get a taste of something else in a minute. Promises, promises. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving. Salty. <laughs> uh, did you? Did it live up to what you wanted it to? Yeah. Um, I talked to Rob from 
the, oh. Doctor, the Doctor Who show. On. And you'll say nothing else except for the fact that people can listen to that conversation on the latest episode but of Nerdology. They could do if they wanted to. Um, but I said to him, I, because we don't really get to go to the cinema very often these days, the two films I saw uh, in 2015 were Spectre and Star Wars. And I felt that when you looked at Spectre, you had all these sort of ingredients that you'd expect for an enjoyable experience. You had what has fast become the, one of the most popular actors to play James Bond. You've got the return of the organisation Spectre. There's a, a baddie from the past who comes back. You've got all the set pieces, flash cars and everything. But the feel-good factor leaving the cinema um, with Star Wars just made it that so much more enjoyable. I didn't I didn't hate Spectre, but it was I didn't feel it was as good as some of the previous ones. Whereas with Star Wars it probably helped that it was on one of the first days of release, so there's gonna be a lot of relatively hardcore fans in there and just the buzz when everyone was leaving after having seen the film and everyone was really excited about it, just captured the essence of the original trilogy. Um but some of it was, it felt slightly remixed in terms of what they do, but there was enough original stuff and the, the cast were amazing. The new cast are really, really good. Um, you just ended up leaving the, the cinema feeling really good and wanting to see it again. Right, now that you've said all that, can I ask the question that I was building up to, which was going to be a preliminary question before I asked any of you what you thought about the film. <laughs> I was going to ask, what were you expecting from it? What were you hoping for from it? Because part of the fact that the prequels came out and were so universally derided at the point of Not impact, at the point of impact, was because they didn't deliver what people were hoping. I did for. a Lee. I avoided spoilers <clears throat> as much as possible. I saw. No, I'm not talking about this film. I'm asking you what you were hoping for from another Star Wars film. To reboot the franchise for the new century. I wanted it to be fun again. I wanted it to be interesting characters, excitement, explosions. There were no yeah. interesting characters in the first six films. They were oh, no, they were all really boring, weren't they? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I got what I wanted. Um, yeah, I wanted Simon, to... Simon's a Star Wars fan. He should be talking about Well, we, we went to see it together at midnight. Yeah, <laughs> on the release date. But, but but before you go into what you thought of it, yeah. going in, did you have a particular expectation of what you wanted to see? I went <clears> in <throat> with as blank a page as possible. Right. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to care again. Mm. Right. That's that. I think is the heart of it. I wanted it. It's, if it was all about the characters, it was all about wanting to care about their journey. Which ironically is what George Lucas was trying to do. He was trying to just tell this story. Yeah, when he yeah. came back to Disney after selling it and saying, this is my story, I just want to tell the story of what happens to the characters. You know. And they so, said, yeah, yeah so do we, look, but we prefer our version. Well, yeah, <laughs> and look what you did with the first ones. You know, you, you created this story that where the characters were kind of secondary, apart from Anakin. <clears throat> um he just know, told the story. But, but I wanted, yeah, I wanted this film to take me back to my childhood. I wanted it to give me the chill factor, that kind of like the spine going, you know. Mm. Um, I wanted, I wanted it to make me feel like a kid again. And from everything I've heard about it, it did. It 
pretty much basically it did. It did, did exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it was almost okay. I wouldn't say necessarily it was a remake, it's almost a beat for beat remake of the first two films, but it doesn't matter. It actually just didn't matter. Because it was so much fun. Let's face it, Return it of the Jedi a was a remake of the first one. Yeah, More I than it care. wanting to make me feel like a kid again, I wanted it to make kids feel like I felt. Yeah. I think a lot of people are missing the point of this, where they're saying, oh yeah, I just wanted, you know, I've been a fan and I just wanted to feel like a kid again. I mean, it's nothing yeah. against you, Lee, but it's just like, hang <laughs> but, on a minute. Oh, no, I think you've got the wrong end of my stick. I know what you're going there. for. But yeah, it's not, no, no, I'm not saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's There's not for them. It's the <laughs> same people who, who go on about Doctor Who saying, oh, it should please the fans and should please blokes in their 40s and upwards. And it's like, no, it bloody no, shouldn't. The thing is, if it took me back to my childhood, and it made me feel excited again. I know damn well then those kids will be would doing be. it for I hope so. Well, you know, I was and I've spoken to a lot of teenagers it. who have seen it two or three times now. Yeah. have said it's one of the best ones I've ever seen. My, I, I took my nine-year-old nephew last week yeah. to see think? it for the second time. And he didn't say it to me. He came outside and said, that's really good. And then his mum came to me afterwards and she said, I oh, just thought you'd let you know that your nephew just said he thought it was the most amazing film he'd ever seen exactly. in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and in which case, I'm not saying that we as older fans shouldn't enjoy it. I'm not saying that, but, and I'm not going to even say that they're the target audience, but that's the level of, of where the, it should work. And, and us enjoying it as well should be a side effect. But the humour was there, <clears throat> the pacing was right, the comedy was yeah. right, mm. the acting was superb all the way through. Yeah. The the effects were great. You know, you didn't have, but there was just two effects in it. Which which bugged me. One of those was played by Simon Pegg, another one was played by something that looked out of Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings. Um, and those two were CGI. Weirdly enough, those were the two weaker moments. But that was it. I couldn't find anything else to fault with this for my life. On the subject the of it, great too. basically being a remake of uh, the first movie. This is this makes me so <clears throat> mad. I'll talk about it in a minute. Yes. Well, I <laughs> it agree. Makes me really angry. <clears throat> What does? Well, the fact that it's been called a remake. It, it is. It's just like, well, of course it bloody is. Do you know what I mean? It's this. It's like, oh, well, I was going to say, we'll make okay. another omelette. <laughs> oh, but it's exactly the same as the first omelette. Yes, yeah, like, thank God. Well, yeah, that's the whole point. Hello. Hello. <laughs> can we say hello on the podcast? Oh yeah, we're still recording. You can say hello to everybody who's listening if you want. Just this wave. Is, They'll appreciate it. My seven-year-old daughter Freya. Where have you been? Say hello. Where have you been? Uh, this is way late. You should be in bed. Be Where have you Star been? Wars. And it's school day tomorrow. Oh, oh I say. Look at Simon's <laughs> wife's eyelashes. They all look a bit Good panto. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been to the library. <laughs> well, funny thing is, Lee dresses like that for the library as well. <laughs> taking after Lee. We were having a serious in-depth intellectual Night conversation night. Then. Were you? <laughs> we'll take our panto prowess elsewhere. <laughs> On the subject of remakes, yeah, and uh, more particularly on the subject of whether within a franchise you should remake another movie from that franchise, and the answer is not just that for all those eight-year-olds who are going to the cinema, they'll never have seen Star Wars in the cinema. Because they may well, very well, have seen Star Wars on the telly or on DVD or whatever. Mm. So it's not that they've not seen Star Wars. In 1973, the complaint about Planet of the Daleks was that it was a remake of the Daleks from 1963. But none of the eight-year-olds in 1973 were alive in 1963. There were no repeats. Mm. They'd never seen the Daleks. Mm. 
So that was acceptable for that reason. But if those kids have seen Star Wars on the telly or on DVD, then is it still acceptable to remake Star Wars? Not beat for beat, but, you know, essential theme for essential moment. Is it worthwhile doing that? And the answer is, you put a film on the telly for a kid, and as far as that kid's concerned, that film is old. It's something that predates them, or even if it doesn't predate them necessarily, it's something that was around from before they saw it. So the way they watch it is that that's something from the past. It doesn't have any currency of being current. Mm. You throw exactly the same story up on the silver screen and it's a brand new movie that everybody's excited about going to see and it's not about the story. As long as the story services the same emotions within those people, that's fine. It's about being in the moment and that film being current. Whether it tells the same story is irrelevant. And the fact that it tells the same story means that in some ways they'll recognise it as this film from the distant past that they've watched and enjoyed. And they'll say, right, that was from the distant past and this is the version that is for me. Mm. Mm. So what you're doing essentially is just turning Star Wars from something that exists into something that exists now. Mm. Mm. So it doesn't matter whether it's a remake or not. Yeah, there's, there's some people talking like they've got some kind of amazing insight that they've noticed this about the film and that. You know, there's that side of it which annoys me anyway. But yeah, as you say, it, some of the situations. It's yeah, about you can, the currency you can, of the phenomenon. Yeah, do you know what? You, you know, if you're going to go into the cinema and 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 basically pull the thing apart and and. Um... Anyway, jump to it. I've got three films to talk about. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny, it was funny that that Mark used the um, the James Bond example because I said to someone, you know, uh, somebody asked me how would you describe it, and I said, well, just think of it as it's kind of the Casino Royale of Star Wars. It's a reboot, but it's not a reboot, so it does continue on, but it is a reboot to the extent where it takes what happened before, uses all the same nuances, the same flair, yeah. flavors, ups the gears slightly. It's made in a very modern way, filmmaking-wise. I think you'll find that interesting. Mm. The way it's, it's actually shot is differently. Yeah. Um, but it still feels like it's a, it's a, a natural progression from the last three films. Yeah. yeah. I the last three saw stories. Jurassic World a couple of days ago. Have you all seen Jurassic World? Or not? I've no, seen it yet. No. Well, you yes. know how much I love the Jurassic Park movies. And what was interesting about this, which I think... I don't know whether this will tie in with what you are about to say... But what I thought was interesting about this was it did all the Jurassic Park things, but what it did was it did them in really bitty ways. Mm. Instead of... The first Jurassic Park is essentially, from the halfway point, the story about how those two kids and the guy who's looking after them, Mm. the couple who are looking after them, get back to safety. It's about throwing them out into a dangerous situation and getting them back. And it intercuts with some of the stuff that's going on with the other characters... But basically, it's an extended 60-minute sequence about four characters. The second film is an extended two-hour sequence about four characters, throws them into a situation, says, right, here's your starting point, here's your destination, you go from A to B. And there is short scenes in there, and there are long scenes in there, 
but it follows the trajectory of those characters. And then in the third film, again, throws, I think it's three this time, if not, or is it four, people into a situation, gives them a destination, and you follow the trajectory of those characters. This film, more so than any of the others, splits everybody up, tells different stories in very short segments, and each bit self-contained, so it's not like it's intercutting between different segments, but each of these segments is self-contained and short. And you know what it feels like to me? It feels like Jurassic Park for the iPhone generation who can't follow a storyline for any more than five minutes before they need to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And and that's not a complaint, because I think it works, and I think it's a great film, but it does stop it from being a classic. I I don't think it quite lives up to the first three. No, I think it works. No, I thought it was shocking. I think think one of the worst things about it is the... Your main character is quite a beefy guy who's got control over the dinosaurs and rides a bike and you know it's it's all the Chekhov's gun thing whatever it was. Yeah, mm. so there's a lot of that. Cat. Sh- Schrodinger's Schrodi- Schrodi- cat gun. Yeah. Fermat's theorem. So all of that's happening all the way through. So you're going, oh, he's going to use that. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. But it's him. I mean, in the first three films, you've got normal dweeby everyday people doing extraordinary things and getting out of extraordinary situations. And all the people with guns get killed. All the, all the really beefy people get killed. Yeah, and here it's the other and way here around. here it's the other way around. He is the hero in this one. And you've got this very cold woman who suddenly makes up, you know, mm. suddenly falls in love with kids by the end of it. Oh, just the whole thing was so round and Oh, they've repeated that, have they? They've repeated the... Oh, it's terrible, man. Awful. Did I say man? <laughs> Sam Neill in the first film. Yeah. Yeah. I love the simplicity like of the dude, first then. film. It's, it's like a ride. The first film. First film. I prefer the second and third to the first, but I mean, just by tiny degrees, I think they're all great. I couldn't bear the book. I really enjoyed this just for the sheer dinosaur fun of it. And I do think it adds up. It's just that, you know, like I said, it's definitely Jurassic Park for the iPhone generation. Anyway, too much grading as well. But the reason I brought that up is Star Wars. Was there any of that with Star Wars? It did feel like a lot was going on. But that was more uh, an action thing. Action yeah, they could have dwelt on some scenes a bit longer, just a few. That that you're right. Yeah. It does. It is faster. Exactly. If I had any criticism, which kind of disappeared for the second viewing because it didn't pick up on in the same way, is the a lot of the in jokes certainly within dialogue. There was a lot of them peppered throughout, which obviously were there for the fans. You recognise little beats from the from the first film. Well, that's okay as long as they don't. It was okay, and yeah. it was on the cusp of taking me out of. In as much as it became yeah. almost too self-aware, I mean, yeah, yeah Star Wars, of course, it's self-aware. The whole thing, the whole project was self-aware from the start. But you know, I mean, the Hell, Mickey, I mean, Mickey Mouse was... walking across the film is the spoiler. Yeah, spoiler for me. You know, in Hell Bent, the bit where they go into the classic TARDIS, I think most classic fans' reaction was, "Oh, lovely," and then spent the next ten minutes looking at the TARDIS. And my reaction was, <laughs> oh, that's nice, and then spent the next ten minutes watching what was happening between Clara and the Doctor. Mm. I think my reaction Just to that then. was completely... Yeah, I know, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> because so, uh, those are the kind of things that I log and then ignore, because mm. because to me, when you're watching a story, that's not important. That's one of the... That's like... Um, well, of course the TARDIS looks like that, that they've nicked yeah. from Gallifrey. It's yeah. like if you yeah. have a chocolate cake and it's got Happy Birthday written on the top. It doesn't matter that it says happy birthday on the top. It could say you're uh, on the top. It would still taste the same. Yeah. <clears throat> All I thought when I saw that was... Well, I, be... when they made it. I think you need to edit that. Yeah. That was a pretty strong word. Mm. 
I think they could. Might, what struck me with if that? If someone's going to write that on a cake, I would want to know what they put into it. <laughs> I think they could revert to a white TARDIS and it would work. Maybe on a slightly grander scale. Mm. But I just thought it looked. I look at, thought it looked great. I thought, no, I thought like, they were priming us for the next few years. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was nice in a small dose. Mm. I think if you had it all the time, I really do think that. Yeah. You give the cameraman and the directors mm. stick them in that set, and they would struggle with it. Mm. Okay. I think it's more about the production than it is about, you know, what f- people might think they want to see. Because mm. I think you stick the cameras in that space and, you know, I really like five minutes, but it's great. Yeah, I think the current artist is brilliant. Mm. I think mm. it's the best one we've oh, had. Yeah. Mm. We got some films to review, Joe. Oh, do you want to move on from Star Wars then? Do you want to score Star Wars? You might as well. No, 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 I don't want to. Okay, oh, if I'm honest. I, I, because... 10 out of 10. I, I was, when the discussion started on Facebook and I ended up getting to the point where I ended up typing stuff and deleting it, it's a new habit of mine where I just, <laughs> just to get stuff off my chest, I end up typing answers when people say really idiotic things. Oh, you should do what and then I, I do, delete start a whole new no. status with it. JR <laughs> <laughs> no, likes to do this weekly got... thing of just baiting people by putting statuses You've got that sort of constitution, I haven't, because I end up just getting frustrated and, and, and it's pointless. So I end up typing it and deleting it, and actually it works really well. Or, or you come off Facebook completely. JR just likes poking the hornet's nest. Yeah. But um, but when the, you know what, the first, I'll reply to that in a second. One of the, some of the first comments came up. I said it's a bit like roast dinner, criticizing Star Wars. It's not this beyond criticism, obviously, but it's a it's a bit like Mum's roast dinner, and if you you can't mark your Mum's roast dinner, didn't matter how bad it is, it's still your Mum's roast dinner. Phantom Menace. Bad, Could you not it? mark no, bad. Phantom Menace? Sorry. Could you not mark Phantom Menace then? Yeah, well, in some respect, it didn't feel like Star Wars. That's the difference. It didn't feel like it had... Yeah, because basically the Phantom Menace was like your cheap B-Jam roast dinner, wasn't it? All frozen and not defrosted properly. Or you'd you'd (laughs) missed... No, no. Phantom Menace was like a really expensive frozen roast dinner that hadn't defrosted properly. (laughs) Or you've been off playing football and you come back and you've missed your dinner because it's late and it's been shoved in the microwave and it doesn't really taste. I was about to say, your your mum's experimented with a microwave and she's done your roast dinner in a microwave and you're like, come on mum. It's like the first time my mum did pizzas back in the early 80s. (laughs) She put roast potatoes on (laughs) them. No, she put the whole pizza in the oven without taking any of the the wrap off it and the the white thing Mm. in the bottom, the white bit of, yeah, and all melted into it. And your mum turns around to you and says, well, there's your your meat, there's your potatoes, what's wrong with it? Try that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It tasted of plastic. Oh, just try something different because you want something different. No, we don't want something. (laughs) tasted of plastic. But the the thing I find most ironic is as much as I'm going to say now is um, that George Lucas almost misses the point of his own thing. And and a lot of what happened with those original no, he films does miss was the point of saying things. He doesn't like the new film. Well, yeah, yeah he <clears throat> does. He not? No, really. He's criticised it. He, he did. He says, "Oh, they wanted to make a retro movie." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that was precisely my question before you all went, or oh, just after you'd all gone to see it. And yeah. They made a film for the fans rather than for the kids. Mixture of two. Aren't yeah, they? I think they'd be quite open about that. Yeah, but I think it works for the kids as well. I guess, I tell you what, we won't find out with this movie. We'll find out with the next one. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I do believe that this movie is, because they've based it on so many elements from the previous movie, 
that this is the launch point for them to suddenly go, oh, boy, tell you what, let's go really and do some different stuff with it. And ameliorates against the possibility of that is you're going to have a movie every year. Mm. Because that's the thing. You get buoyed up about something and it doesn't actually matter whether it works or not. If you can keep that level of excitement going, you keep people coming in until you hone it so that it does work. Yeah. So if they can, so if in some ways this movie isn't quite what it should be, two or three movies down the line, it will be. And if you can keep the movies coming out once every year, so yeah. you're generating that level of excitement, you'll get people still coming in to see them. I do and think it's, it's something's going to be attacked on two <clears> levels, though. You've got the episodes, which will they will they will tie the tie the party line, uh, toe the party line for. To a certain extent, but then you'll have the anthology movies, these little break-off ones like Rogue One, where they can go off and do something slightly different because it's 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 just something that's happening in the Star Wars universe as opposed to that kind of thread that runs through all the different episodes. So, um, but I was going to go back to is George Lucas. I've been reading up and listening and listening to documentaries, all manner of things, um, how so many accidents and and it was far more collaborative than he probably says, George Lucas. A lot of the stuff, decisions were made because of cost, because of time, literally because things didn't work. So all this business going back and saying, I'm not happy with it, I want to change this and change that. A lot of the stuff that he wanted to change is probably what made it so magical in the first place. You know, a lot of the, like Han Solo's character, a lot of that was Harrison Ford's decisions, not, not George Lucas's. The original character was really quite one-dimensional and he still is. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Compared to most characters in films, yeah. But if there's anything that people love, it's that roguish nature, and a lot of the lines were things that Harrison Ford talked yeah. about with the director and changed. Mm-hmm. You know, the famous line in Empire Strikes Back was between Irving Kirshner and yeah. Harrison Ford. So, of course, George Lucas misses the point because it's, in some respects, it's not the films he intended to make. And yeah, you know what? He made American Graffiti, yeah, which is the yeah. absolute epitome of all those things you've just talked about that are mm. come out of the characters and the actors. Mm. American mm. Graffiti is literally just a case of throwing a brilliant cast at a fairly good script and letting them turn it into mm. gold. Well, it is in some respects, he, he misses the point of the organic element. Mm. Well, this is the dichotomy between THX and American Graffiti. Yeah. THX has got nothing organic in it, apart from the lizard. And American <laughs> Graffiti is all organic. And Star Wars, the very first one, for my money, mm. fell more towards the organic. Yeah. And with Empire Strikes Back, I think it started the progression slightly towards the sterile. Mm. And, I, uh, you know, and the prequels are all sterile. I think people like Empire because it's darker. Yeah, I don't think it's as good a movie at all as the first one, but because it's darker, I think it deceives people into thinking it is. I think it's also as well that people, like I say, about people caring about the characters and these awful things happen to them. So it's it's kind of like when things start getting a bit twisted and they take those characters out of this big fun movie and start doing slightly meaner things to them. And there's an element of that to the new movie. All of that is happening. Everyone says, oh, this new movie is just like the first one. It's just like episode four. But actually, there's a lot of episode, episode five in there as well. Yeah, yeah, but it's all working. Probably movies. better than Empire. I don't know, mm. but... J.R., have you got some films to review? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, three. I'll do this quickly. I'll do them in the order I watch them as well, because... Well, because that's the best order to do it in anyway. So, I've been Lee. (laughs) (laughs) 
The first one is called Blood Harvest. So I've been Lee, not Blue Harvest. No, Blood Harvest. So it's going to be crap, isn't it? Um, it is, without any shadow of a doubt, and not at all in a way that makes it worth seeking out the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought the last one was the worst one. You've I know, seen. this <laughs> outdoes even that. This wow. is one of those films where the person who's making it, and this is a low-budget Irish film made for £10,000, and it's one of those things. It's one of those things. You know what I say about um, unknown directors or directors at the start of their career will often do things in a slightly more ostentatious fashion to get themselves noticed. And then when they move on to bigger and better funded projects, they don't need to do that so much so they calm down a bit. This is a director with no talent whatsoever, using as much shock factor as he possibly can in order to try and draw attention to his movie. It is absolutely foul. It starts with, and it's not even a great special effect, but I mean... It's not so cheap that it looks ridiculous. It starts with one of the nastiest things I've ever seen, and I've seen things like Saw and that, and, you know... It starts with something that is just deliberately nasty for nasty's sake. And the worst thing about the movie is, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the movie, he comes up with a reason for it. And it's one of those things where you get to that point of the movie, and you're thinking, this is not a story about the reason he came up with. He hasn't come up with this reason and then built a story around it. He's come up with this hideous thing in the opening scene and said, right, how can I excuse that later in the movie? And the excuse he gives later in the movie also excuses some other stuff that's in the movie. And the other stuff that's in the movie is absolutely inexcusable on any human level whatsoever. It is the most offensive thing I have ever seen committed to film. And not in any kind of a way that's worth seeking out to see what I'm talking about. What does it about. offend? Does it, it feature a politician and a pig? <clears throat> oh, it is way more offensive than that. What does it offend? Does it offend your sensibilities okay, you or what. does it offend... I don't want people to go and see it, so I'll spoil it. It is about a serial killer... And um, this is the ridiculousness of this film. It's about a serial killer, and you've got two cops on the trail of the serial killer, and one of them goes a bit too far, so he gets sacked. So the other one takes over, the sergeant gets promoted to inspector, and he goes back to the other guy to, uh, you know, get his brain cells working to help him out. <sighs> oh, God. I can't... Except, when they sat down and wrote the script, they didn't actually think about any of this stuff. So when they wanted to put the clever twist in, that's the thing that the detective thinks up that suddenly solves the case, they need to find the serial killer, right? He's been he's killed something like twenty three people across Northern Ireland over a period of something like seven years or something stupid like that. So quite prolific. <clears throat> but he has a map on the wall and loads of newspaper clippings around it. And on his map he's got pins in where all the murders take place. And he also has a pin in with a little post-it note. And the post-it note, instead of saying anything that's got anything to do with the case whatsoever, and with no explanation given at all anywhere in the film, just says, 
investigate here with a little arrow pointing to a field. <laughs> and so <laughs> half an hour into the movie, he goes and investigates the field and it's the wrong place. So he comes back and he spends 15 minutes sitting in his chair, staring at this wall. And then he suddenly springs up, walks over to the wall, and realises that the post-it note's at a slight angle. So he pulls it straight <laughs> and finds the serial killer in the spot. Uh, and that actually makes it sound quite funny, uh, but it is just not. It is just seriously awful. You're staring at the screen at this point thinking, oh my god, are you serious? Excellent. But that's not what's offensive about it. The offensive thing is that... <clears throat> The serial killers, because there are three of them, uh, are portrayed. And he gives an explanation for this, but the explanation just doesn't cover this because there is a, an aspect of this explanation that undermines the explanation itself. The serial killers are basically portrayed as Joey Deacon in the most offensive fashion. It is like, and here's the explanation, they're aliens. But one of them learns the language, gets the job, and becomes the copper that gets promoted, which is why the other copper gets sacked in the first place, because he's seen to it that this is going to happen. But then the other two aliens never learn the language, never learn to integrate with society, even though they've been, the crash landing took place like 20-odd years ago. So they've spent 20-odd years living on our planet, needing our blood to survive. Taking our jobs. And the serial killings. benefits. But the killings don't start until seven years ago in the film's timeline. So for 15 years before that, you have to imagine that these aliens have been living on our planet without eating. And without bothering to learn the language and integrate in the way that the third one does. So it doesn't even make any sense. So the way he portrays these aliens as not having learned our language is basically as running around like Joey Deacon killing people. It is just offensive in a way that I've never seen anything done before. And it's not done for funny. If it was done for funny, you could almost excuse it and say, well, it's just a joke that doesn't come off, a mm. joke in poor taste that doesn't come off. But it's not done for funny. They're all taking it deathly seriously. I've never seen anything like it. So what would you give out of ten then, Joe? One. Is that because you can't give it zero? Yes. Would you give it zero? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Next. <clears throat> Can I borrow it? <laughs> yes, I brought it, just um, in case you asked. Hey, don't. Just put it in the bin. Yeah. The next one is a film called Last Shift, which is American, uh, which is not a high-budget, high-profile movie, but it's a, a movie with a certain amount of budget and a certain amount of profile. The lead actress in it is somebody who you know advertises on the box from the walking dead she was in three episodes right but she's been in walking dead so it's not like she's a complete unknown she's been in a few other things as well but that's the thing to point out it's about a copper her very first day of work she arrives at a police station um i don't know what time it is 6 p.m 8 p.m whatever darkness has fallen she's on the night shift when she gets there, she realises the police station's closed, everybody's moved to another police station. There's some stuff that's been left behind that should have been moved out. 
So somebody's got to stay in the station overnight to make sure nobody breaks into the evidence room and picks up this stuff, even though it turns out to be a red herring and the stuff's not actually important for the story. So she's on her own in a police station overnight and it turns out to be haunted. And it's, and it, here's the thing, it's done, it's made really well. She's a really good actress, she convinces you. Uh, and the story does have some severely illogical plot points, like how on earth would somebody turn up for their first day at work not to realise that they're on a night shift at a defunct police station all by themselves? And why would you put somebody in a defunct police station all by themselves on their very first day of work? You get past those things, you can suspend your disbelief because it's well enough made. It doesn't really add up. The logic of the story adds up, but the logic of the way the hauntings are presented doesn't. If they'd have stuck to one kind of haunting that tied in with the reason for the hauntings, it would have made a lot more sense. Mm. But as it is, because the director's got 90 minutes with one person in one building, he kind of throws a lot of stuff in there that really shouldn't be there. So it doesn't quite add up, but it's effectively enough made that it's actually a good film, just as long as you forgive it. The these faults I've just said. Why didn't she leave the building? What stops her from leaving? Because that's always a thing with anything to do with the haunted house. You have to give a really good reason no, why you don't just leave a house. There's an in-film in explanation for that. Okay. That actually is logical. All right, fair enough. But I'm not going to spoil it by saying what it is, because I don't want to spoil... Because I think people listening to this, some of them might actually see this film, and I don't want to spoil anything about it, because if I give you any information about the hauntings... I'm kind of giving away the ending of the film because, mm. you know, you have to kind of get to the end of the film to kind of understand yeah, okay. why it's all happening. Mm -hmm. So, and I think they give away too much too soon. I think by about half an hour into the movie, you can pretty much work out where it's going, but I don't want to say it just in case. <clears throat> I give that a six. It kind of, if it hadn't have had those logicalities, it might have been a seven. Mm. Mm. But because of those logicalities, it just, it's one of those films where you think, oh, that was really great. And then afterwards you sit down and think, oh, what the hell? <laughs> <clears throat> That's if you're not thinking that while you're watching it. The third film, <laughs> the third film is called Deathgasm. <clears throat> Got to borrow that, just on the title alone. It is about a uh, teenage metalhead Yes. His mother gets thrown into a mental institution and has to go <laughs> to stay with his Bible-bashing cousin and his parents. Ah, uh, sounds great. Uh, whose Bible-bashing cousin has a really hong, hot, blonde, wholesome girlfriend that the, uh, <laughs> that the skinny, way-faced metalhead falls for. And, um, well, the skinny, way-faced metalhead, you know, arrives in this new town finds the uh, old second-hand record shop and falls in with this guy who's Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones, basically, <laughs> who is a bass player and the metalhead's a guitar player. So they form a band. And uh, there's this thread throughout this first 15 minutes because uh, everything I'm going to tell you is in the first 20 minutes of the film. There's this thread throughout about this reclusive rock star who's disappeared. Well, the bad boy knows where he lives. He's in this very town. So they go up to see this reclusive rock star, who it turns out has the sheet music. 
for an incantation Yay. that summons up basically the devil. Yay. That's a 1980s film called Heavy Metal or whatever it was Basically. Called. But this is done, oh no, this is done with so much imagination and, devil went down and to Georgia. verve and humour. It's like Spinal Tap meets Shaun of the Dead meets Bad Taste. Oh, it was that an, sounds good. It was an absolute riot from start to finish. Right. <laughs> I don't think, uh, it, you know, it's rammed from wall to wall with jokes and comedy death scenes. It's not remotely scary, but the, what happens when they do the sort of spell is that the townspeople start getting possessed. <laughs> so it's like Shaun of the Dead in as much as uh, most people are turning into basically zombies, possessed demons. People, and so they end up offing them. But unlike Shaun of the Dead, which is relatively tame in that effect, I mean, this is this has got one scene. No cricket bats and no <laughs> sex toys. Oh, it's got one scene that's an extended battle <laughs> where they use these sex toys to off the zombies, and this is this is. An example of exactly oh, what the entire Lee's rest of the film is like. Lee's as soon as you said that. <laughs> oh, there's a... There's this a, could be Lee's film of the year already, and we're only four it's days It's just in. the imagination. There's that a is. genitalia yeah. fetish from start to finish, and there are so That's many... That's right up your alley, isn't it, Lee? Hey, not my alley. There are so many heads getting <laughs> split open or locked <laughs> off and all this kind of stuff. Put it this way, it's probably the most bloodthirsty film I've ever seen, but it is so much fun. You don't <laughs> care whether you're... It's just an absolute riot. Highly recommended. I mean, Box out of ten? I gave it an eight. It's one of those films where... <laughs> that's quite high, isn't it? <laughs> it's one of those films where some people look at it and say that's the worst <laughs> film I've ever seen. <laughs> but if you're on the right level for it or in Lee. the right mood for it, you will have an absolute blast. Yeah. <laughs> it's not out to the end of February, mind. But... Oh. <clears throat> You'll have to wait. No, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. And the complete antithesis of the first film, which was so lacking in invention. Mm. This is... I mean, it's it's all clichés, but, you know, they just have an absolute riot going through. <laughs> and, people, and the important thing is, the three characters in it, the three main characters, all the characters, but the three main ones, are charismatic. You want them to win. You care about them. Mm. There you are. That's the most important thing in any film. It's from New Zealand as well, I should say, so it has that antipodean sensibility <laughs> that the early Peter Jackson films had. Nice. So yeah, that's definitely. I kept thinking that when you were talking about I kept thinking about brain dead. Yeah, it's it's brain dead, bad taste, whatever, meets Shaun of the Dead. It's basically the plot of Shaun of the Dead. And of course, when I say this is spinal with tap. Dildos. Yeah, with dildos. And, it, and, you know, when I say Spinal Tap, it's obviously got nothing to do with the story of Spinal Tap, but it's about heavy metalers, and there's yeah. plenty of rock music in there, all done in, you know, a particularly over-the-top way. Have you seen the Spanish version of Shaun the Dead? No. One of the Dead. No. <laughs> that was the best thing about it. <laughs> but no, with, it's uh, okay. Overdubbed. That reminds me, I saw no, Peanuts, the movie. Oh, you mean an actual new movie? <laughs> the, no, it's about three or four years old now. It's called Juan of the Dead. But you mean it's a different movie rather than just Shaun of the Dead with... Oh, yeah, no, it's not Shaun of the Dead. Oh, right. di- Sorry, it is a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Juan. I thought you just meant, you know, overdubs. That would be funny. Well, look at what um, Anthony Burgess did with Serrano de Bergerac. What did he do with that? Yeah, well, he completely... He, they got Anthony Burgess to do the English version of the script for the subtitles. Oh, I didn't know that. Is it like the Magic Roundabout? Yeah, effectively. Yeah. He, instead of... Um, reproducing the French script in English, he just wrote a new script of his own 
You're joking. No. I mean, it's a I mean, classic I've, story. I've seen it in French, obviously, <clears> so told, but I've never heard... It's a classic story, so he can't alter what the story is because it's basically up there on the screen, but he changes all the dialogue, so all <laughs> the jokes in there aren't in the French version, they're just in the English version. It's just like Asterix. <clears throat> I missed you know that because that's like this really famous no, thing I didn't about that. No, I have to get it, get it, have to go back and watch it. Dig it out. Great film. Peanuts. <clears throat> Peanuts. If you liked the old cartoon series, comic strips, you'll love the film. If you were indifferent to it, you'll probably be indifferent to <laughs> you it. You probably wouldn't go. It doesn't to watch really it add anything to it apart from some beautiful animation. Is it funny? Because I never found Peanuts funny. Not. No, no. Depends it was, on it, it was age you were aiming for. The I first guess, twenty minutes were quite amusing, and because it, it felt fresh. But as time went on, all I say is myself and my wife, we kind of were, we were like the weather people. Every time we looked across the other one, they were asleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that doesn't make it a bad film because I, like I, I know some people who love Peanuts and thought really liked it. And I, I you know, and I did like it. I would give it a sort of a seven out of ten or something like that because mm. it does what it's supposed to do, really. And it does translate to the big screen really well as a as a long format story. It tells I, I don't know put another put they couldn't make another one without starting to introduce extra characters and ridiculous situations. And what's lovely about it is it's a bit like the Paddington thing from last year, where you had Paddington. Where my issue with that was the fact they introduced this evil character yeah. who started doing, and they don't do that. It stays oh, well good. within the Peanuts world. So nobody dies. No, the, sex the most flamboyant thing is when you get the the Red Baron scenes with with Snoopy, and oh, yeah. and they become full yeah. three dimensional dog fights and things like that. You know, and it's, it's I don't know if they could have done Paddington without it though, because <clears throat> the way they the thing they did with Paddington was make it so that it was more of a cartoon than the original, mm. and I. They fleshed it out. They fleshed it out. And when I say they fleshed it out, I don't mean they kind of... <clears throat> the way they brought it into the 21st century, it, like with New Doctor Who, like you can't do New Doctor Who without that emotional content now. Mm. I think with the Paddington, the way they brought it into the 21st century, they couldn't have left it as a film without a dark side and a light side. But didn't they, they touched <clears throat> on the immigrant thing? Well, surely that's that's enough darkness without the peril. Uh, it was the peril which I had issues You'd have with. had to develop that perhaps beyond any point at which it was any longer just something that they were touching on. Hmm. It, ne- it was a film that needed a dilemma. I mean, you know, like somebody who's it. trying to send Paddington home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm stealing his marmalade. I appreciate the writing while you'd have to be pretty clever to, to create something like that and then for the kids to get on board Because they that. kind of developed but... it beyond the life of a five-minute TV programme that was in the kids' hour mm. to a film that was, you know, a family film that was sp- in some ways like Doctor Who that was specifically layered so that rather than just being a cute kids' film that was decent enough for the adults to enjoy as well. It was actually a film that was aiming itself at those adults mm, mm. quite ostent- ostentatiously mm. in certain areas. I don't know. I I know what you mean about the Nicole Kidman stuff. 
But I just he might from been, watching it, I just felt it's probably it, just Nicole Kidman. It could mm. be her. It yeah. could be the, her character. Yeah. I just thought if you'd have taken that stuff in. out, there wouldn't have been a movie left. In it some seemed ways. to be going on really nicely before she she appeared. If I'm honest, there was that lovely, you know, the lovely bit where the house owned up like a doll's house, and and it had the like, same oh, haircut as the Jurassic World woman as well. Yeah, but I think if <laughs> she hadn't that. have turned up, yeah. I think you would have got to the end of it and felt it was a film without any substance. Okay. I don't know. I mean, mm. and maybe, yeah, maybe it's her, and maybe it's that character. But I don't know. I got to the end of it, and yeah, I kind of saw what you were saying, but I did feel that it needed to be in there. Mm. You've got the DVD at home. I've yet to watch it. Oh, it's really good. Mm. But it's, it's, I mean, it's it's the same kind of world as Stuart Little, isn't it? Stuart Little mm. didn't have major peril in it, did it? it no. small peril, and it was still enjoyable that to watch. That was fun, yeah. It was aimed at the smaller kids. You kind of get... Yeah, I don't know. I just felt with Paddington that they'd gone beyond. I don't know. There was something about there's something about that movie where Stuart Little again is like a kids' film that's decent enough for the adults to enjoy it. I don't know. I'm probably not phrasing this very well, but somewhere with Paddington, I felt they'd gone beyond, and I felt a lot of Paddington was actually specifically aimed at the grown-ups. Yeah, yeah. And so I think by doing that. You kind of feel the need, and mm. like I say, I could see why it was there to put something more substantial in like as a, post a threat. On Pat. Well, movie, <clears throat> some nasty threat. In that. that is a terrible <laughs> film. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> JR's face. How dare you attack the Royal Mail? You're not attacking the Royal Mail. No. Post from Pat. Well, what's the threat? Toy, in it's not post great. from Pat then. I can't. Was it Aliens or something? I don't know. It went bonkers. really. Nativity oh. Three. Anyone seen that? <laughs> oh <laughs> God, we'll be here all night. <laughs> I already talked about that. <laughs> no, no. That Aliens. <laughs> and Martin Clunes. Uh, it's close enough. It's it's burning out mm. from Snake It's the Manusen. <laughs> it's strangely enjoyable. It's better than two. I've never seen any of them. I saw half an hour of some terrible thing with David Tennant where he was leading some kids over some mountains. That's that's Nativity 2. Oh, is it? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. It looked awful. I mean, there was bits in that where it doesn't make sense and it doesn't join up. And then three, they just say, oh, sod it. Let's just do a load of stuff that doesn't add up to the point where you think this is so odd, I'm actually starting to enjoy it because it's so weird. It's a bit like a trip, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a trip out to the shops. (laughs) Is he in all of them? (laughs) Who's that? Tennant. No, no, he's no, just in the second one. No, first one's all right, Martin Freeman. First one's all right. Yeah, it's okay, isn't it? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I don't even. That was know a what face that said, "Am I allowed to say it's okay?" No, I wasn't sure for a minute. I don't even know what it is. I just saw like a twenty or thirty minute bit with David Tennant that just I was just looking at the screen thinking, "The hell's going on here?" Yeah, it is a bit like that. Three's even more like that, but it's to the point it's where it starts becoming kids. quite. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can live with absorbing. that. Mm. I can live with that. Yeah. Um, do you know we stopped talking about Doctor Who about an hour and ten minutes ago? Yes. <laughs> <coughs> should we uh, knock this on the head for a week? I think we should. Yeah. <clears throat> Before I fall asleep. Um, we're reconvening uh, next week, so it's going to be us again next week. Which day is that? Don't matter, does it to the podcast? <laughs> I don't think it matters. To that. Inside Sorry. baseball. Sorry about that. <clears throat> yeah. Why would you be interested? What did everyone get for Christmas? Can I just um, do a quick round of did anyone? Sandwich. I didn't get much. I've got a nice TARDIS diary and a Doctor Who calendar. I've got some diarrhea as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Same. Exactly the same one as you've got. But I've got more Star Wars stuff than Doctor Who stuff. Strangely, for the yeah. first time in about. I've got the tenth. Well, yeah, but this is probably time. the year when there was a lot more new Star Wars oh, stuff yeah. than Doctor Who stuff. Yeah. I haven't watched it's the got Interstellar planet. on Blu-ray. Haven't seen that yet. That's good. Um, and some money. Hey. Yeah. That's what Christmas is all about. Oh yeah. I've I got Ant Man on Blu-ray. Yeah. I haven't watched that yet. Oh, that's fantastic. You'll love that. Yeah. I've got the tenth planet. Haven't seen it yet. I got these trousers I'm wearing. <laughs> That's not exciting, is it? Um, great for the listeners. I got a little 3.75 inch Supreme Dalek from Planet of the Daleks. And finally a 5.5 inch piece of Capaldi. Is that what they're calling it? Hey, it's your heart. Got the New New Order album on CD. I tell you what, I'm really, order. really order. into this Christmas. We've been playing a card game called Flux, which you might enjoy. It's a card game where every time you put a card down, it changes the rules of the game. It's a right mind spin. It's brilliant. Is it called Flux or Flux? Flux. There are about 20 different versions of it out there. It's fantastic. So, recommend it. entertaining. Flux, guys. F-L-U-X-X. Flux. Two X's? Yup. Why? Why not? Well, because flux is an actual word that JR. describes what you were just talking about, and it only has one. There's already a game called flux. Yeah. So there's probably a video <laughs> game called flux. Something like that, probably. Yeah. And it's a bit more down with the kids, isn't it? Yeah. So it's pretty down with the kids, isn't it? Flux. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who flux needs to be made. Right. Let's. I'm definitely knocking this one off now. In two weeks' time, we will be doing Series 4, Donna and the Fourth Doctor. Ooh. Donna and the Fourth Doctor. Ooh. I did that last week or the week before. Donna and the Tenth Doctor. Donna and the Doctor. So find our Facebook page if you want to vote on these stories and do it quick. Because uh, if you're listening to this, then it won't be long before the voting closes and we actually do that podcast. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know what we're going to be doing next week. So I guess people will find out when they tune in. Until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.